This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome everybody, welcome all our Torah Anytime viewers. We are going to continue with the second class, second uh, the part of the series of the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim or the Exodus. Again, this is fundamental to Judaism. This entire Yitziat Mitzrayim is mentioned almost everywhere in, in Judaism. So it's it's uh, very imperative that we know the story, we understand the story, and we definitely learn the lessons from the story. So, uh, last time we left off, we left off with... Um, I'm just so excited. I can't. I like, it. like, this is so awesome. I, I hope you guys are excited. This is going to be awesome. Ah, okay. So, by the way, I'm not, this is me dialing it down a little bit. Um, okay, so... No, you should be pumped. This is, this is, this is it's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. All right. So the, we left off last time with uh, Moshe Rabbeinu as a little baby. He's three years old, and he's in the palace now. And his his uh, acting mother, which is Batya, was uh, his mother introducing himself everywhere as this is my child. And there he starts uh, being uh, raised in the palace. Now, when he's being raised in the palace, he is living, uh, you know, as as a prince. He has he has uh, you know royalty and you know dressing royalty. Everything is 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 high quality, you know, even, he, he's even taught the, the, um, the sciences and the knowledge of, as, as a prince is taught. So, as he gets older, he, uh, and, and the Midrashim skip, it's basically from like when he's three years old until when he's older and he goes to visit the Jewish, uh, um, the Jewish nation in Goshen. So again, the palace where he lived was not near the Jewish area. He had to actually travel out to the Jewish area, which was in Goshen. So, he decides when he's, uh, uh, you know, about 20 years old, there's uh, conflicting opinions, but we're gonna go with the age of 20 years old, he's gonna go and visit his Jewish brothers. He always knew that he was Jewish, and he always, and he was actually always a holy person. He was never, you know, being that you're, you're in the palace, you have the ability to do who knows how many sins on your fingertips. He always stayed holy, he always stay, stayed uh, righteous. So, he goes and he decides now it's a time to get in contact with his uh, Jewish heritage, and he makes his way down to Goshen. And he sees in Goshen, he sees these, you know, he sees the slave camps, he sees how they're working so hard, so he goes over to the Jews, and he says, uh, what's going on? Why are you guys um, working so hard? And they're, so, you know, like, he had no clue. And they start telling him, you know, oh, you know, so, you know, all the slaves, all the work that we have to do, and, uh, you know, how much, uh, you know, how tough it is on us, and how terrible it is. And uh, his heart really went out for his Jewish brothers. And he started when, you know, he, he, you know, it's not like one of those rich people, you know, like the, the high end, you know, the, 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 they feel bad, so they'll write a big check and they'll go away. He wasn't like that. He actually went, he rolled up his sleeves, and he started working with them. He was, they were picking something heavy, he went and he helped them. <clears throat> and not only that, if he saw somebody was, ba- was, was, uh, you know, had a wound or, you know, needed some help, he would go run and he would bandage them. If he saw somebody that died, he would go and give them a proper burial. So he really went into the, into the, uh, to, into the dirt with them and tried to, tried to alleviate some of their hardship by with his physical physical help. Now, he decided that being in his uh, high power, that he's you know the prince, he could do something for the Jewish people. So he goes and he's, he's thinking he's going to present some ideas to Paro, but he has to do it smart so it doesn't arouse suspicion to himself. So he goes. And he says, um, he goes to Powell and he says, listen, he says, you know, I just came back from a visit to Goshen. And I'm like, whoever's running this is not doing a good job. I mean, this is bad labor policy. This is just not good. And Paul says, what do you mean? So he says, you know how you, if you have an animal and you want the animal to work good, so you have to make sure you give it work only appropriate for the animal. You can't give you, know, you can't give a dog you know something to pull that that an ox can pull. You have to give it according to its level. And the same thing is with humans. If you're giving them, if you're working them with things that they cannot physically do, you're, they're not going to produce good work. It's not going to be efficient. And it's not going to be effective. 
So Paul says, he says, uh, you know, and then, and then Moshe continues, he says, and listen, if we don't treat our slaves right, then they're going to die out. What happens if they're going to die out? Who's going to finish the work? Our own Egyptians? So rather, we have to make sure we take care of our properties. So Paul says, uh, you know, he says, I like the way you think. He always, you know, he always imp- was impressed with Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe was very bright, very smart, very intelligent, very quick on his fingers. So he, he said, listen, I give you control. Do whatever you want. You know, I give you full control. So, Moshe didn't waste any time, and he gave them, uh, the Jewish people, only work that they were able to do. Obviously, he wasn't able to just, you know, you know, abolish the whole thing, because, you know, the empire would have, who knows what he would have done. So he decided he's, the first step is giving them work only that they are able to do. And that's what he did, uh, um, it, it, what he started off with. A short while later, he goes and he visits Paul again. And he says, listen, he says, we know we're definitely on the right track, we're doing the good thing, we're, we're, you know, I definitely see an improvement in the, in the, in the productivity, but, um, he says you can't, they're working seven days a week. They're working, they can't, you can't work seven days a week. You know, in the early 1900s, the way that America used to work is they used to work seven days a week. There was no day off, and that was a big problem for the Jewish people moving in here, uh, back then because it was, you know, if you, if you wouldn't work on Saturday, if you don't work, work on Shabbat, you got fired. And back then they thought that, listen, if we're not working seven days a week, we're losing, we're losing money. Until, you know, they did some research and they realized that if you are able to rest more, the, the employees are more productive and they're more effective and, the, and it actually increases productivity as opposed to decreasing productivity. So, they, um, so this is what Moshe goes and presents to Paul. Paul says, you know what? I like what you're doing. Go on with it. So Moshe went and he started calculating the day of rest. Obviously, he was going to choose was Shabbat, and but he, it wasn't like now we have Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We know Saturday Shabbat. Back then, it wasn't you know who knows what how, how they they uh, named it. So they didn't know Moshe didn't know. So he went and he calculated from the six days of, of creation and he calculated you know seven days and he calculated until that period point of time to figure out which day would be Shabbat. And um, that's why when God goes and God gives them the the, um, the obligation for Shabbat, it says we pray in the in the prayers in Shachrit of Shabbat. We say Yismach Moshe. Moshe was was uh, was happy. He was glad. What was he happy? He was happy because the date that he picked coincided with the date that uh, that Hakadosh Baruch Hu, that God gave him, and he's like, oh wow, now I'm happy. I got the right date. Paul says fine, and he goes and they get off a day of Shabbat. Now he starts. Moshe starts thinking. He's proactive. He's thinking, what's the next step? And he's and he's like, you know what? He says we got to get rid of these enemies. He says the biggest enemy for the Jewish nation right now, besides Paul, is Bilam. Bilam is always there, going and giving another uh, piece of information on what to do to destroy the Jews. So he decided that Moshe is going to have him executed. As a prince, he would be able to uh, you know pull some strings and have him executed. Bilam heard about this and he decided to, to run. And he took his son, his two children, Janos, his two sons, Janos and Yambus, and they ran to the to the king of, of Kush, which uh, you know was a nearby country to Egypt. So Moshe goes and uh, continues his daily you know visits to to this uh, to Goshen to the slave camps. And uh, one day he sees an Egyptian you know hitting like beating this Jewish person. This Jewish person was named was Dasan. And they go, and he and he goes to the, this. Dasan sees, you know, this you know Egyptian who was helping him all the time, you know Moshe. And he runs over and he begs him. And he says, "Please, you got to help me. This guy's trying to kill me. This Egyptian trying to kill me." So Moshe goes and says, "What's going on in here? Why is he trying to kill you?" And so Dasan goes and he says, "Listen," he says, "You know, um, uh, you know, they come to the Egyptian come to to wake us up every early in the morning to make sure that we come to work on time." And uh, he 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 woke me up. And he, I guess he took, he saw my wife, and after I left the house, it was still dark, he came back into the house pretending to be him, and he had, you know, relations with his wife. And now he's beating me because he doesn't want me, anybody else to find out and that, that he, you know, slept with a married woman. So, um, so, uh, and, and his, 
the, this woman was Shalamis Bas Divri. That was her name. And um, so, so Moshe Rabbeinu went, and he, and, you know, he wasn't, you know, did, didn't come to rash decision. He thought about it, and he says this Egyptian deserves death penalty. Number one is because he's trying to kill somebody else. When you're trying to kill somebody else, you're on the classification of death, and that you could, that's that's uh, deserving of punishment of, of uh, death. And number two, he violated a married woman. And under the seven mitzvahs of Bnei Noach, you're not allowed to violate a married woman. So. He was still nervous before he would do anything to this Egyptian of what it's going to, you know, actually the percussions about it. Because if you kill one person, you don't kill just one person. You kill all his future generations. So he decided he's going to go and he's going to look to see what, um, in his Ruach HaKodesh, he's going to see what's going to come out in the future of this, uh, this Egyptian. If there's going to be even one person, maybe, in te- you know, thousands of generations or thousands of years, if maybe he'll convert and be a righteous, a righteous uh, person. And he goes and he looks and he sees nothing. He sees nothing, so he decides that he deserves a, a death penalty, and he goes and he pronounces the, um, the, the, the special name of God, and he was able to kill him with just the name of God. And that's why it says in the Pasuk in Shemot, it says, um, when, he, when Moshe Rabbeinu says, and he, and he looked back and forth to see that there was going to be no man, you know, the, the simple translation was he was looking to see that there's not going to be anybody around him so he could kill this Egyptian without anybody else seeing it. But in essence, what Rashi explains it is that he's like, no, 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 it wasn't that he was just looking to see, you know, if there's nobody around here. He was looking at the future generations to see if anybody else was going to come out of him. Once he saw that no one was going to come out of him, he said the name and he killed this Egyptian. And it goes even even crazier. It's, you know, like uh, coming out of like a Spider-Man. And then he, he did something by staring at him and he, you know, turned into like like ashes and dust. He then went and he took his body and whatever was left of it and he buried it. And, uh, um, and, and then he, he, you know, whatever, the, the day went on. Afterwards, when they start hearing that there's a missing Egyptian, you know, policeman, a high-ranking officer, you know, the place is going crazy. Like, where is this, where is this Egyptian officer? And usually you would think somebody commits a crime or, you know, something against the, the, you know, the king. You sort of, like, keep in hiding for a few days, you know, just keep it down low, you know, don't, don't, he, Moshe Rabbeinu was straight back the next day, right back into the, into the, um, into the, into the dirt, into the, into the slavery camps. So, the, um, he's going back in the slave camps and he sees over here something that shocks him. He sees uh, two Jewish people arguing with each other. And now they weren't just arguing with each other in a, in a you know, like, in a, they were arguing with like murderous intent. And the two people that were arguing with each other was Dasan, which was the one who we saved yesterday, and Aviram, which was his brother-in-law. So his, his, Dasan's wife, Shlomi, she, she was the sister of Aviram. So they were, why were they arguing? Because now Dasan says, listen, my wife was, you know, she, she was with another man. It's not fit for me to be married with her. So his wife went and told her brother. Now her brother came and tried to convince him, don't, you know, stay, you know, stay married with my sister. So this is the argument they had. Until one of them goes, Dasan goes and he was going to uh, raise his hand to strike, you know, um, Aviram. And Moshe saw this and he's like, he was so shocked. He's like, Rasha, wicked person. He says, why do you, why do you uh, strike your, you know, your fellow Jew? So they went and they were arguing. And all of a sudden Moshe comes to try to break it up. And all of a sudden they, they started, they're like, who made you boss of us? Dasan and Miran, they're fighting now and they're now ganging up against Moshe Rabbeinu. And they go to Moshe and they're like, like, who made you boss of us? He's like, you know who we are? We're the aristocrats of the Jewish nation. We're the high, you know, government, you know, like, you can't tell us what to do. And, um, and then they go and they say, you know, Dasan goes to them and says, oh, you're going to want to kill me like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And, and, and in fact, they go on and he says, chutzpah that they have. He says, oh, we're going to go tell power on you. This is a guy that saved their life, that saved his life. And he's gonna be like, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell on you. You know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go snitch on you. It makes, you know, it makes absolutely no sense when you think about it. So this is the, is the time where, um, 
Moshe, when he went, and he, he always wondered, why is it, why did the Jews deserve that they would be enslaved? Like, there's so many nations in the world, why are there Jewish nations enslaved? And now, it says, um, it says, um, here it and now the matter is known. It says after, you know what he says, what, what, what does it mean when he said the matter was known? Now I understand why the Jewish people went into slavery. It says because they have people amongst the Jewish nation that speak Lashon that they speak evil speech amongst, uh, amongst their brothers, and that's why they had to go, they went into slavery. They're slanderers amongst the Jewish people. So true to their word, they, they went, and they went to Paro. And uh, these chutzpanim went to go to Paro, and it says, uh, Your Majesty, you know, Moshe, your dear prince, he's bringing shame and dishonor to the royal house. And uh, Paro was like, I don't care. Let him do whatever he wants. So, you know, like, all right, you know, they upped the ante a little bit. So, like, um, you know, Moshe is making it easier on the Jews. Can you believe it? It's like they're making their life easier. and be like, you know, he's the one who's making my life easier. You know, like, like, you know, like, he's the one who's giving me a break. Don't do it. Like, what do you, you know, it's like, I don't understand. I, I, so... Um, they go and uh, Paulus answers back to them, let him be, go ahead, uh, he can do whatever he wants. And uh, then they go and they start pulling out, uh, you know, all the cards. They're like, you know, uh, you know, Moshe is uh, not an Egyptian, he's really a Jew, he's not Batya's uh, child. Paulus pa- is like, still, I don't care, let him be. So then they said, says, uh, do you know that he's a murderer? And then suddenly this like perked the interest of Paulus, he says, he says, what? He says, yeah, you know, he, he's a murderer. He's like, you know, go on, tell me more. And he's like, well, you know, the Egyptian that uh, is missing, he was the one who murdered the Egyptian. And uh, he says, furthermore, they tell Paro, he says he didn't even use a weapon. He just murdered something under his, uh, under, under his mouth, and, they, and he dropped dead. And this is what scared Paro. He says, he, he's a murderer, and he's roaming around in my, in my palace, and he's with just words able to go and kill, you know, people. He says, no, no, this is not going to stand. He says, go and arrest Moshe right now. Paro, all, all kings are all paranoid. Yeah. Uh, you look at history. Well, not all of them, I'm saying, but they, they were paranoid, yeah. So he goes and he, and they have, they have Moshe arrested. When they have Moshe arrested, um, Dasan and Aviran actually got a tremendous award. They became very wealthy from this because power rewarded them. And, uh, the, the issue that it was with, with, uh, killing Moshe and having him executed because that was the judgment. The judgment is that Moshe was going to be executed. The problem is he was, he was, he was a tall man. He was a strong man. You know, so it wasn't, so they actually built, they created a special sword to kill him so that it could slice off his head, uh, nice, swiftly and easily. They go, they prepare everything and they take this big sword and, you know, the executioner is standing up there and he goes, brings it above over his head and brings it speedy down right on Moshe's neck. And then there was a miracle that made in that instant that Moshe's neck turned into marble. And it was like, bing, deflected right off. And they looked at Mo- not even a scratch on Moshe. And they, they tried again, and they tried again. They tried this ten times, and it didn't go. And they didn't know what was going on. So they're, they're all confused, they're sitting around over here. Meanwhile, an angel comes in. Angel Michael comes down, and he assumes the identity of the executioner. And the executioner looked like he, he assumed the identity of Moshe. So it sounded like everything switched. They, now this, the executioner, which is really the angel of Michael, takes the, he has the, the knife in his hand, sees Moshe, cuts off his head, which basically kills the executioner, and the, you know, and, and the, his body drops down. Now Moshe is still standing there. And everybody's like really confused at what's going on over here. And then, you know, God put in Moshe's mind now to, you know, run. Just go, 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 you know, time to run, get out of here. And so Moshe starts running. And all of a sudden, they, you know, they have it like Moshe over here, and then Moshe's running over here, they, and then Paul starts screaming. He's like, get him, he's right over there. And, uh, you know, the, the, the miracle was 
if you could picture it, it's, it's, it's comical almost. <laughs> you, you, the, he's running over there, Paro screaming, but the, there was another miracle that happened that all the soldiers around them became deaf. And they see Paro screaming, but they can't hear anything. And then, um, so then Paro starts motioning with his, with his uh, hands, you know, just go there and go, you know, kill him over there. And another miracle happened and they became blind. And he's like, you gotta be kidding me. And he starts screaming on top of his lungs to go and, you know, get the guards that were not in the, in the, in the immediate circle. And he, when the second that he tried to scream really loud, he became mute. And at this point in time, the angel Michael goes, takes Moshe Rabbeinu and he brings him, he takes him out of Egypt and he brings him three day journey out of, out of Egypt. So, Moshe, uh, was, at, at this point in time, he escaped Egypt and he ended up in a, um, in a, in a country nearby called Kush. Uh, Kush, there was, uh, this is actually where Bilam also ran away. Bilam ran away over here. And what happened was that, that when he, when Moshe, let me give you a little bit of a history about this, uh, this country. So Kush was in, it was at war at this point in time when Moshe came with, um, actually it was a little bit beforehand. He, he, they were at war with Kedem and Aram. And they went and Kush was very successful. The, the king of Kush was Kinkus. And he was extremely, extremely successful in his, in his, uh, capturing of the war that he was ongoing. And while he was at war, he went and he gave, and he took Bilam, which was, you know, uh, in his, in his country at that point in time. He made him the, like, the acting, you know, ruler until he comes back. The, um, you know, everything was going well for Kinkus, but, you know, Bilam had some other ideas in his mind, and he decided that he's going to take over Kush. And he's, he, you know, he, he basically gathered a nice, uh, you know, gathering, and he, they decided they're gonna rebel against the king, and then he, he's gonna be, and Bilam is gonna become king. So what they did was, is they, they went and they fortified the city. After they, they made Bilam king, this is while, while, you know, Kinkus and his, and his army is outside, uh, you know, fighting a war. And, uh, they decided what they're gonna do is that besides, after fortifying the city, they, they had two, you you know, entrances where people could come in. So one of them, they built, they, they dug a deep moat and they filled it up with water. And on the other opening, they put like scorpions and snakes. Bilam was able to do this. He was able to conserve like through his magic from like all other places. Because uh, magic, what you're able to do with magic, you can create something new, but you're able to bring something from far away. Especially for the, for the use of demons. So he went and he, you know, gathered all these dangerous poisonous snakes and scorpions and they flooded the entire area over there so that the soldiers can't go uh, over there from one side and the other side you have the moat so they wouldn't be able to come in. King goes, goes and he returns from war and he looks at this, you know, beautiful, you know, wall that he's like, oh, how wonderful. Look, they were nervous. I wouldn't know what coming. They built us a beautiful uh, thing. This is amazing. Uh, to his surprise, when he tried to get in, you know, he was attacked. And he, it took him like a few, you know, moments to realize what was happening. So they, you know, basically went for, to, to, you know, to war against his own capital. But uh, it didn't go well for him because they had the upper hand. And he had, you know, about 130 people died in like the first day. And he decided, you know what, let's going to try something else. So he, he backs it. The next day he tries to go through the, through the moat, through the water. And there was a tremendous whirlpool. I don't know how what Bilam did over there, but he killed everybody over there also. So they realized that they can't go into this, into his city. And uh, he decided, Kinkos decided that he's going to lay siege. He's going to lay siege to, the entire, to his entire capital. And while he's laying siege, the siege was going on for nine years. And that's when Moshe Rabbeinu and Moshe appeared on the, on, on the, on the scene. Question, what's present day Kush? Ethiopia. So, the, at this point in time, he's, he's about 20, Moshe is about 27 year old, year old. He's a fugitive from the king of Egypt. And, uh, he goes and he sees, you know, this whole uh, siege going on over there. So he goes and, and, you know, he was a very tall, handsome, very smart man. And, uh, Kinko's got a liking to him. And, uh, right away he made him general. And, you know, he really comes from a prince king. You know, he knows how to, you know, how to, how to fight. And, um, they, he gave him a high position. Now, uh, shortly after, after he came, the general, Kinko's died. 
They died, and all the soldiers are sitting over there, and they're like thinking, like, what are we going to do now? We're on, we're we're at we're at siege already for nine years. We haven't seen our family. We're out over here. Should we just just get you know just? And by the way, their families were inside. They were inside the the the, the capital. So they're like, what? Should we just give up and go? Like you know, they're tired. They you know they just want to be done with it. So they decide that they're going to appoint Moshe as king. They're going to appoint him as the as the king, and you know, let him decide what to do. So they go to Moshe and they explain the, the dilemma to them, and you know, he accepts the offer and he becomes uh, the king of Kush, uh, and he he assumes the power of the of the siege. Now he tells them, he says, and not only that, they also gave him they gave him the widow of Kinkus to marry, and he married her, but he never consummated the marriage because one of the things that was that uh, that God told Avraham was that you should never marry into the family of Canaan and they were from the family of Canaan so he never consummated the marriage which we're going to see it's going to come into play later so um, they, they, Moshe goes to them and says listen I have a plan this is what we're going to do he says I want you each to go into the forest and capture stor- stor- uh, what is it storks storks yeah that's how it's pronounced capture the, you know, the ones with the long beaks so capture the storks and as babies and bring them and bring them here everybody has to capture one stork so they all go and you know they come back and they each are holding a stork and he says now what we're going to do is we're going to train them to go hunting for food like hawks and that's the way that they're going to be trained until they're fully grown. And all right, so it takes them, I don't know however long the, these uh, these things uh, grow. Uh, but uh, in a short while, they're fully grown and they are trained to be like hawks. It's like everyone has their pet stork and they go and they fight and they win and they get the mice or whatever the animals that they that they capture. Now, once they're all fully grown, they're fully trained, Moshe goes to them and he says to his soldiers and he says, now starve them, don't give them any food for three days, these storks. So they don't give them any food, they, they hold them down, they keep them in cages. And finally, the third day comes, and Moshe says, "Okay, now, now, uh, you know, get ready for war. Gather all your armor, gather all your things, and we're going to fight. We're going to go through the the place where the scorpions and the snakes and all the all those are." It says, "When they got close to that, they said, all right, release the storks.' The storks released them. They started flying, looking around. They see they see these poisonous snakes, and they go and they start, you know, eating them because they're starving. And because their beaks were so long, the, the snakes weren't even able to bite them, and they were able to just, you know, clear out the entire area." And when they had the entire area, Moshe went and he went through that and he was able to take over the city. He was able to take over the city, but during this time, you know, it was um, the, the king of, of, of Aram and Kedem, who they were fighting for originally, heard that the king, the original king died. They're like, now is our chance to go get back at them. So they went and they went full-fledged war against, uh, against Kush now. But now Moshe is, uh, is, is ruling Kush. He goes... And he takes 30,000 men, and he was able to, to you know, um, you know, repel the, the entire rebellion that was going on, and he was able to, to win that war as well. And he rules Kush. Moshe is the king of Kush for 40 years. 40 years of sitting there and, and ruling Kush. Meanwhile, um, the, the, you know, the queen, she decides, you know, her son, she had a son from the previous uh, marriage from his, uh, from Kinkus, and he was getting older, and she decided, you know, he's fit to be king. He's now been learning all about how to, how to rule a kingdom, and he's running this, and she goes and she calls a meeting with all the high officials. She says, listen, she says, you know, I believe that, you know, my son, who's the rightful heir for the, for the throne, he should be the one who should be ruling, the, and not Moshe, my husband. She says, besides, this guy never touches me. You know, he says, not only does he doesn't even touch me, he doesn't even follow the same religion. They were all idol worshippers. He doesn't even follow the same religion as us. A king needs to follow the same religion as his people. He has to, you know, has to be united with the queen. He says, it's, it's, this is not working out. The people were very nervous because Moshe was, was really, he was really good at what he was doing. So, uh, they presented to him, you know, in a sort of like, hey, this is what we heard. What do you think about this idea? And, uh, so he was like, he's like, he's like, no problem. I'll step down. And he goes and he steps down and they give him gifts and they give that and they send them away. So 
he goes and he uh, he leaves he leaves Kush and uh, during this time there was uh, well when Moshe was in Kush there was a very um, sad uh, story that happened in Egypt with the Shevet of Ephraim the the tribe of Ephraim they calculated thirty years earlier. They, they miscalculated the, redemp- the time for the redemption, and they thought the time of the redemption was supposed to come, so they decided they're gonna go and escape Egypt. But they didn't really need to escape because they were from the tribe of Ephraim, so they were, they were able to, you know, gotta leave Egypt as their free will, being that they were descendants of Yosef. So, they, um, they decide that now comes the time for them to go and leave Egypt, and they go and they take the entire tribe of Ephraim, and they leave, uh, and they leave, uh, Egypt. They take, they didn't even, they didn't even take any animals or any food with them, they took a lot of money, and they figured, you know, we'll buy stuff on the way. So they went and they're traveling, and uh, when they they reached uh, near a city of it's called uh, Gath, and when they got to the city, they saw a bunch of shepherds there. The family was hungry already, and they said, "Okay, listen, you know, you guys have a lot of sheep. Let us buy the sheep off you." And they were like, "Who are you guys?" Like, "No, we're not selling you the sheep." And you know, the tribe of Ephraim was very 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 strong uh, uh, tribe, and they're like, "It's um, like, listen, you know, we have wife, children. You know, please, we'll buy, we'll pay whatever it is that you need to pay. Give us the sheep." And they refused to take it. So they had at one point that their families are starving. They have sheep over here. They don't want to take it. So they took it by force. They didn't have a choice. They took it by force. When they took it by force, these shepherds started screaming for help. And the nation, the, this nation of Gath comes and they come and they bring up, a, you know, the full army and they see this entire tribe of Ephraim going and taking their, their shepherd's sheep. And they, it was a full-fledged war. And at the, this, at this point in time of the war, both sides had casualties. So what God did, they, they called their surrounding, you know, countries, and they asked them for reinforcement. They all came, and they were like, you know, talking about like, you know, thousands of thousands of people, you know, fighting the tribe of Benjamin, of, of, sorry, of Ephraim, and they were, they, they killed out the entire, the entire tribe of Ephraim was, was killed out. It was known, they were left, they were actually, they were, this was the Valley of Bones. And, uh, there was ten, ten people from the tribe of Ephraim that was, that survived. And they went back to Egypt, and they told uh, Egypt what happened. And Egypt, you know, they were under a tremendous mourning, all the Jews in Egypt, that they just, you know, they practically lost the entire Shevet of the fight. So, now, Moshe leaves... Uh, Moshe leaves... Um, at this point in time, Moshe leaves uh, Kush. And he goes to Kush, and he heads out to Midian. Now, uh, Moshe, we said Moshe was, when he, when he escaped, he was 27 years old. And he was in Kush for 40 years, so now he is 67 years old. He's 67 years old, and he enters Midian. Now Midian is the, um, he decides where he's gonna, he's gonna reside, and Midian is near a well. And one of the reasons he wanted to reside near a well is now he's not, he's not the king of a kingdom. He doesn't have, you know, guard forces. So, uh, so he, he has to figure out a way, cause the Egyptian astrologers are constantly looking there, they would be able to locate like GPS, you know, location through the stars to see where this person is, and then because Moshe was a fugitive, so they were the, constantly the astrologers were looking to find out where Moshe was. So what he was going to do is he was going to live near a well, and what he did was is he put like this metal grate on top of the well, and he sort of you know spent a lot of time over there. And one of the reasons was is that they would see it, it would confuse their vision. They're like he's standing on some sort of metal bridge, and we don't even know there's water. They couldn't, so it sort of he knew about this, so he distorted their vision, so they wouldn't be able to find him. So. He's sitting over there, and at this point in time, um, Midian is the same place that you saw. Yitro, he uh, ran away from Egypt. When we spoke about him in the first part of the of the series. Is that he uh, gave the the advice to to Paro to not harm the Jews? And Yitro, you know, saw that it wasn't going well for him, so he escaped and he escaped to Midian. When he came to Midian, Yitro became a uh, you know a very high sensation. He was um, 
he was like I, I guess you could say a professional idol worshiper. Like he did, he did all the idols. You know, like he was, he did not leave any idol untouched. He was a priest of like all the idols. So they came over there, and back then they were very into religion. Surprisingly, right? They, they were, I mean, they were into religions and gods and all these. So he came over there with all this knowledge, all this aristocrat. You know, he's like they, they actually made him a a high priest, and with that, you know, he came a high, you know, luxury lifestyle. So the, um, but after, you know, after living that life for quite some time, he realized that it's all fake. It's all nonsense. He actually tried every single, every single avodah zarah, every single idolatry, and he realized it's nothing. So he decided that even though it's giving him a good life, he can't live a lie. And he decides he's going to go and he's going to tell his, uh, you know, the people of Midian that he's retiring. You know, it's been a long time. You know, he's retiring uh, from his, uh, from his work. So he goes and he tells the people and they're like, retiring? You don't retire from like being, you know, it's like some things you don't retire from. It's like, you know, the Pope, I mean, the Pope does actually, there was a story of a Pope that did go and he wasn't, um, you know, he, he stepped down from his position. But generally, these types of people do not generally go and retire. He's like, no, 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 something's wrong over here. You're not retiring. Must be that you don't believe in all these gods. And they sort of picked up on where he was going with that. And they decided that um, they're going to ban him. They're going to put him in Kherim. They're going to, no one's allowed associated with him. He had, at this point in time, he had seven girls. And these seven uh, girls were, no, no one was allowed to, uh, he had, he was a shepherd. He had a lot of uh, animals. And no one was allowed to be a shepherd. He has to, like, everybody had to disassociate with him. Because he was, you know, this, this, uh, this guy doesn't believe in all the gods. And he was a bad influence. So they kicked him out of the community. So, Moshe was in this well, and uh, um, the y- Yitro's, uh, you know, daughters, they came, and they would, they would be the shepherds. And when they had to do is, they had to go, and they had to go early, really early, before the regular shepherds go to the well, because then they would not let the, the you know, they would cause problems to the, to, to his daughters. So they used to come, they used to come really early, so this way they would get out of the way before the other shepherds come, so there's no conflict uh, amongst them. So, they come early one day, and it just so happens to be that the shepherds, God made it that, you know, would also come early that day. And it just so happens to be, at this point in time, was Moshe was, uh, was also there. And um, so the shepherds, you know, see that, you know, you told, you know, the, the guy, the, the person who ran away from there, went off the derach from their derach. And he decides, it's like, a, this, this, you know, so they, they started, you know, causing them problems for these women. And the woman, meanwhile, already took out the pail, the water from the, from the well. They went and they took all of their water away, and they threw the girls into the well. And Moshe Rabbeinu sees all this, and he goes and he runs over, and he's like, he starts giving them Musa, all these people. He says, so this is what you do. This is not the way of the world. The way of the world is that the men would give the woman the water. Not only here did you reverse it, where you took the waters, the woman, the water from the woman, but not only that, you threw them into the ocean. He's like, what, what are you guys doing? And he goes, and he walks over to the well. And again, he's like a towering figure. It's not somebody, you know, like, you know, ten amal. He's like a big guy. And, uh, you know, people, you know, they, so they, they, they back down. And they walked, he walks over to the well. And the, there was a miraculous thing. As he walked over to the well, the water started rising to him. And the, the shepherds saw this, and they started, okay, this guy's not so, you know, not the regular Joe Schmo, the regular guy. And you want to turn on the heat? Is it, you know? Uh, so, I see slowly, slowly, yeah. So, more and more coats are getting on. So... Thank you. So the um so he goes and and he he, he basically picks out these these uh, the Yitro's daughters from the well and um and then he goes and he starts giving, a, let's say, like a lecture. He gives a lecture to the guys to be like, you know, what you guys doing here is wrong. It's not the way he's supposed to do. And he basically is talking to them and he's giving them, uh, and, and they were extremely, extremely impressed with his words. Um, afterwards, you know, the daughters, the seven daughters of Yitro, they started thanking him. They're like, you saved us. You know, you know, there's nothing, you know, we really appreciate it. So Moshe, what did he answer? He said, don't thank me. You know, he said, thank the Egyptian that I killed. 
He says he was trying to show them how hashkacha works, how everything works, and it says if I and this didn't happen last week that he killed the Egyptian, and that's what they, that's what he chose. He says because I killed, you know, that I had to kill the Egyptian so many years ago. That's why I had to escape, and that's why, I, and that's why I'm only here right now. What, what he's really showing them is if I'm here now, there's a reason for it, not just because I planned on being here. God has a reason and a plan for everything. So they go and they take their, they thank him and they go to their uh, home to their father Yitoh. Yitoh goes and he's like, he looks at his, you know, the clock or the sundial, whatever they told him back then, and he's like, you guys are here really early. What's going on? Why are you guys here so early? So he says, you know, there was an Egyptian guy, and you know, they told him the whole story. He went and he saved us, and then when he went, it was a miraculous thing. It was really cool. He went and the water was rising, and you know, you know, whatever they gave him the whole story. So Yitoh's like, he's like Egyptian. He's like, it doesn't sound like an Egyptian. He says, what makes you think he's an Egyptian? He says, you know, he wore Egyptian clothing. He's like, no, 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 this guy's not Egyptian. This guy, I bet he's probably from the Jews. He says, no, it doesn't make sense. This is what he taught says. So he goes and he taught says, so, so where is he? He says, you know, I don't know, we left him by the well. He says, you left him by the well? After all that he did for you, invite him for dinner. Invite him for some, you know, you bring him over. So, Tzipoa, which was one of Yitoh's, uh, you know, uh, daughters, ran right away and to, uh, to went and, and she got Moshe and she brought Moshe back. One of the reasons why her name was Tzipoa, that she was always quick. She was always swift to do what was right. So, she goes and she brings, yes, uh, as a bird, yeah. Mm-hmm. Swift, swift is a better, yeah. Um, but also you can also say Tzipoa, what you use to purify a mitzvah. Uh, impure, um, you know, person in, in that particular defilement, and uh, she also went and she purified the entire house of idol worship. She was a very holy, she was a very righteous woman. So they go and they invite Moshe, uh, Yitro invites Moshe to, to his house, and uh, he, so he says, please tell me about yourself. So he goes and Moshe starts telling him the story. He knows I was in Egypt and then I left, um, and you know, and then he goes on and he says, you know, and then I got, and then I ended up in Kush, and in Kush I was king for 40 years, and then as he continues, he's like, oh, Yitro is like, he's like, Dial back a second. You say you are a king in Kush for forty years. He's like, yeah. And then after Kush, I end up getting around. He's like, he's like, wait, there's something fishy over here. Because Moshe, Moshe yeah, Moshe was king. Yeah, you missed it. Um, so um, he goes and 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 Yitro says, he says something is fishy over here. He says because he thought originally when he heard all these things that that Moshe did, he says this could be the redeemer of the Jewish nation. This could be the the guy that everybody's waiting for. So, but now that he hears that he's a king of Kush, it's like, why would a redeemer? Why would God make a redeemer of Israel be a king in a different? foreign country for 40 years. Makes no sense. Rather, Yitoh says, this guy is probably one of those adventurers who likes to, you know, travel the town, like, you know, one of those pirates, you know, says his fairy tales, everything that he sees on the seas. And, you know, probably up to no good. And, uh, in fact, he, he was actually starting to get nervous about Moshe. And he decided, you know, maybe this guy, is, who knows what he, what he did. And who, do, who knows what he's capable of. So he went and he put him immediately in his dungeon, in his prison. Yitoh put him in his prison. Thank you. And Yitoh goes, and they, meanwhile, they decided what they're going to do is they're going to, he's going to investigate and see if really Moshe, what he's really saying is true. But he was busy with other things and it sort of left his, uh, left his mind. Meanwhile, Tipa was over there and she has, you know, she sees, you know, Moshe's down over there and she's like, you know, nervous. Well, you know, you know, his father completely forgot about it. And she didn't go to her father and be like, hey, you forgot about this guy. She didn't say anything. She just started going and she started sneaking food to him, to Moshe. And she started sneaking food to him. Meanwhile, uh, she's thinking, you know, it's not, you know, she's out in the field being a shepherd. So they decided she had a, she had a good plan. She goes over to her father, says, listen, father. Says, you know, you know, you have seven daughters, me and my six sisters. Says, you know, I do, my work is much more efficient, more productive. I, I produce so much more than all my sisters combined. And Yitoh says, yeah, you're right. Uh, it's true. Good point. So he says, what are you heading at? He says, listen, he says, you know, we should split up. 
He says, I should do one thing, and my six sisters should do another thing, and this way we could accomplish so much more. He says, one of us should work out in the fields with the sheep, and another one should take care of the house, and take care of everything he needs to take care of the house. And Yitro's like, you know, that's a really good idea. He's like, okay, um, what do you want to do? You want to be, and she wanted to be in the house, so this way if she's in the house, she'd be able to take care of Moshe in, you know, much, much easier. No, they didn't allow Moshe to No, they, they didn't, he, he forgot about him. He didn't even, uh, no, no, no. He's a, he's a put him in his in his dungeon. He's a prisoner. Yeah, he's in prison now. So, um, and in prison now, it's not like you get three meals a day. You get one hour of exercise. You get read books or something if you want a degree. You get prison over there. You're in a hole in the ground with who knows what. Um, and uh, we'll feed you when we remember, because he wasn't sure. He he was nervous about where his whereabouts. You know where his. Uh, Still, he was still nervous. Um, so he goes and he um, and he and and he starts thinking. So see, Paul, instead of saying that she wants to be in the house, she says, "No, better that it comes from him. It's not good if I say it. It's going to look fishy." So she's like, "Listen, Dad, whatever you whatever you want, you know, in the field here, whatever it is." So he tells thing, he's like, "You know what? It's not safe for a girl by herself to be out in the field with all the sheep." He says, "Better I'll send the six girls out there, and you'll stay in the in the house." She says, "Listen, if you want me to be in the house, I'll be in the house, no problem." <laughs> and uh, so that, from there goes on. She starts. She's she's in the house, and she has uh, easy uh, access to Moshe and she's able to constantly feed him and keep him alive. Ten years go by. Ten years he's in prison. Yitor completely forgot about him. Finally, Tzipor is like, listen, it's like, it's been ten. You know, so she goes to her father and she confronts him. He says, listen, what's the story with the, you know, that prisoner that we dropped, uh, you know, ten years ago? He says, you know, he, nobody ever came to, to, you know, seek about him. Must be that what he was saying was true. And Yitor is like, oh, right, I forgot about that guy. He's like, yeah, I guess you're right. So she's like, you know, we must have made a mistake. We must have put it down there in the dungeon for no reason. And he's like, you know, I think you're right, but, you know, what can we do? It's, you know, he says, maybe we should go check on him. And he's like, he's like, Tipo, it's, it's been 10 years. He says, what do you want to see, his bones? There's nothing left over there. So listen, you don't know if he's really a Jew. Maybe he's got, you know, the God of Abraham, the God of, you know, we hear all these stories about this, this you know, strong God. Maybe he did something, for him. maybe he saved them also. So he says, fine, you know what, let's go check. And they go and they both go down there and they start uh, checking the, um, what, and they see Moshe is alive and well and he's middle of praying. He's, he's thanking God over there. And he told us, shocked. He's like, how is he still alive? And he couldn't understand it. So he quickly took him out and he gave, you know, he cut his hair, he cut his nails and he gave him to, he gave him the fresh clothing and he gave him the, what, bathed him and he gave him to eat and um, you told us like, you know, like this guy is obviously something, you know, something special. So, good question, I don't know. <laughs> so, I don't know why she waited that long, but so, yeah, it's a good question. So, um, meanwhile, the the um, you know Yitro had in his yard there was there was a special staff. There was a special staff. This staff that Adam had when he was in Gan Eden, he gave it to Enoch, and and who gave it to Noach's son Shem, which gave it to Abraham, which gave it to Yitzchak, which gave it to Yaakov, which gave it to Yosef. Yosef. You know, when he died, Paul took it. It was a very special staff. And when Paul took it, when Yitro went and he was escaping Egypt, he saw the staff and he grabbed it and he took it and he ran with it. When he went into, when he went into uh, Midian, he put the staff on the ground and it sort of like became, it like, you know, it was like a miraculous staff. And nobody was able to move it. It was like standing still in the ground and people came and tried to move it. So much so that he even, so he, he's like, listen, whoever is able to pick up this staff, can marry my, you know, the, my best daughter that I have, which is Tzipoah. And, you know, so all the eligible bachelors came, and they tried to pick it up, nothing doing. You know, Moshe was walking around over there, and he sees this stick on the, you know, on the ground, and he looks closer, and he sees, you know, the, it's written in Hebrew, it's, it, the acronym of the ten plagues, the Tzach, Adash, and Be'achav, is written on the stick, and he looks at it. So he grabs it to take a look at it, and, he, you know, so he, he picks it up, and he looks at it, and he told us, look at him, he's like, what? So how does this guy pick it up? You know, and by the way, this staff is, you're talking about, it's a, it's a serious thing, it's about between seven to eight hundred pounds. And Moshe's looking at it like this. You know, I, I don't know. 
I don't know how this is way. Yeah, I don't know. Moshe, when Moshe um, went and he picked it up, so Yitor realized that this is going to be the this is going to be the redeemer of the future Jewish nation. He, this is where everything clicked in. and be like, this is the guy. So the um, Moshe, you know, he told uh, Yitor told Moshe. He says, listen, you know, whoever gets it out gets to marry my my you know my first you know my Tzipora, and uh, you are the one, so you get to go and uh, marry Tzipora. And Moshe saw with. Through, first of all, he saw that so Tzipah helped him for so many years, and he saw that he was destined to marry her. And he agreed to the marriage. He agreed to the marriage, and he gets married at the age of seventy-seven. And um, during this time, when uh, when he was married to her, you know, the Yitoh gave him a few conditions. A few conditions it says number one, it says when you um, you know you. What I'm nervous about is your, you know, your ancestors, Yaakov, when he, you know, he married, uh, he basically escaped with his, you know, daughters and his, and his children, his grandchildren, he escaped Lavan. And he says, you cannot leave me Yanu unless you have my permission. He was nervous that he's going to say, Moshe, you know, so not a problem. And Moshe went and he went to the father-in-law's business and he started working as a shepherd. He also... I don't know. Yeah. I'm not familiar with that. Yeah. I didn't see it. So... He goes and and uh, Moshe goes and he is um, and he is he, he is a shepherd. Now going back to what's happening in Paro in Egypt is Paro was um, he was afflicted with while Moshe was in prison he was afflicted with tzarat. Tzarat was a, it's a very very painful disease that he had uh, you know skin disease and it was from head to toe it was extremely ravaging and he. You know, he was, uh, um, you know, going through a very, very hard, God was basically paying him back for all the suffering that he did for the Jewish people. Bilam, at this time, he came back to, because what happened was, is when Moshe went and he captured Kush inside, so we said Bilam snuck away with his kids. Where did he sneak away to? He snuck away to Egypt. So he was back in Egypt again. Bilam's always in the story. Wherever, wherever you're going, he's in the story. So Bilam goes and, um, you know, the king is like, you know, sick for years with his tzad. And he says, listen, you know, he calls everybody. He's like, is there any cure that you guys don't know? Like, is there something you can do? So Bilam, the rasha, first guy to always jump up. And he says, your majesty, there is, there is a cure. He says, uh, what you need to do is you need to bathe in fresh blood. Fresh human blood. And the fresh human blood, it got to be fresh because it's got to be warm. And that will be the cure for your illness. And he says, so he says, where am I going to get, yeah, where am I going to get a fresh, you know, I, I, you know, to bathe in, it's not like you need like a squirt, you know, just cut, give me a, you know, to bathe in blood, you need lots of blood. So he's like, where am I going to get a bathtub full of blood, you know, you know, the thing. So he says, listen, so Paul, so Bilam says, listen, this cure is only for people that are kings and, you know, high government officials that are, have the ability to do, to do this. Very simple. Just kill Jewish babies, you know, and get the blood from the Jewish babies. So... Um, and he says, and he says, interesting. So he goes over to his physicians, to all the doctors, and he says, "Is this consistent with uh, you know the medical uh, you know science that we have?" And he, and the, the, they say, "Yeah, in fact, it is." Um, and I'll tell you even more. It's better that if you go and you kill the first, firstborns, because the firstborns, the blood is more pure, and it's going to be much more, much more, uh, more beneficial. That's what you should do. So they go and. Paro goes and he and he starts uh, he starts killing 150 babies in the morning and 150 babies in the evening to go and get the blood for his. And during this time, the Jewish babies were no longer they, they weren't hidden anymore because after Moshe was born, there was no need for them to go and hide the babies because they had the um, you know the, the, the Egyptians weren't weren't throwing them in the Nile. So so the, everybody was out in the open. So. Again, the entire the entire Goshen, the entire Jewish cities, they all came flooded with um, with soldiers. Grabbed the babies out of the parents' hands, and they went and they slaughtered the babies 150, so 300, 300 babies a day. 
and uh, you know he's bathing in his in these in these babies Jewish babies blood. And meanwhile, the infection is spreading more over his body, and he's not getting better. One day, one of his advisors come in and be like, "Listen, we have a problem with the Jews. Like, what's what's going on with the Jews?" He says, "You know, they're being too lazy. You know, they're you know they're they're slacking off in the work." So Paul gets really really angry. He says, "They're they're taking advantage of me because they know my condition. So they think now that they that I have this disease, they're going to slack. That I, you know they are able to slack off." So he says, "You know what?" He says, "I want to go. I want I want to go do a visit to uh, um, to to Egypt. To I'm sorry, to Goshen, to to the land of where the Jews are." So they go and they you know gather the chariots, the whole you know you know orchestra of people that go and travel with Paul, and they are going and they're traveling. And during a certain part of the part when they need to travel, they need to travel in a single file. And when they need to travel in a single file, so there was you know like soldiers in the front, soldiers in the back, and Paul was being carried. And uh, it, there's something that one of the horses slipped, and Paul you know sort of fell down. And to make matters worse, people started tripping over them, and the carriages and horses and people just everybody just fell on Paul, and it, it like crushed his bones. And so much so that they had to cancel the entire trip. He was literally between life and death, and they carried him right back to the Egyptian palace. And at this point in time, they realized that his, this Paro's end is near. And he just, that he had to do it, he had to go and, and appoint the next king because it didn't look good for him. After this, besides the fact that he was sick and after he went through all this, it wasn't looking good. So they go and they, Paro had three sons. One was named as, uh, the, the oldest one was Asurai, but he was a fool, an idiot, you know, he wasn't fit to be a uh, king. The second one was, his name was Adikum. He was very, very intelligent, very sly. But he was so ugly. It was like, like disgustingly ugly. Besides the fact that he was about two and a half, two and a half feet tall. Right? So he was like a, you know, he was a, you know, a little ugly, you know, like disgusting. So he's like, he's not either so fit for it. And then the, the last son, his name was Morion. He was immature. You, you know, he was, you know, he was immature to be king. So they didn't, you know, the, the key, you know, he, he pushed off his decision power to who to make uh, the next power. Meanwhile, he uh, sort of survived for another three years in this condition, but his condition like deteriorated. Into, it was he had like this flesh-eating disease, and it smelled of death and decay in the room. The and the babies didn't help. No, and it was a there was, like you walked into his room, it smelled like death. It's like you know he was like you know like melting and you know. So this Malul, this King Malul, uh, this Paul, he um, he ruled for Egypt for ninety-four years until he uh, he died. He died, and he was buried in the in the city in the Egyptian city of Tuan. But even in his even in his death, through all the suffering that he went through, he was, humiliated, he was conti- continued to be humiliated because he couldn't be, you know, they, they, they would embalm them, they would, you know, take. But his body was so deformed that they couldn't even do anything for it. So they, you know, it stunk, and so you know, he was completely like, you know, chucked in with his, uh, you know, ancestors in the in the graves. So there was a very big, um, it was a very big funeral for him, and the Jews, you know, were, you know, everybody's, you know, the king, you're required to go to, the, you know, think of it like a communist uh, country, you know, North Korea, if the king dies, everybody has better be crying, otherwise your head is coming off. Mm-hmm. So, the Jews are over there, and they all, all cry, but they weren't crying because they couldn't care less about the king, they were crying, they figured now they have some chance to breathe a second, they use this time to pray to God, God, please save us, save us from all this hard work, this thing, and they were also nervous about what's going to be in the second, you know, what's going to be, you know, the future, is it going to be worse, is it going to be better? So the Paul picked, you know who he picked as a as a king, one the ugly one. So um, the Adikum, the, the the little one. So uh, he was actually um, he, his. They called the nickname for him was Avus. Avus was an Egyptian uh, name for shorty. So, but be, to make matters worse, he thought that he's going to look good with a beard. So he grew a beard, 
and this beard literally reaches ankles. You know, whatever. I mean, so foot beards, but it was reaches ankles. Um, whatever, foot and a half. So you know, he's like he's walking around like you know, like waddling with a big you know beard, you know, looking ugly. Everyone's like, oh man. And uh, the Jewish people were like nervous. Now they were they had some people said no, he's going to be much better than the old king. The other one's going to be like, no, no, this guy's going to be much worse than the old king. And uh, unfortunately, the second one was proved to be uh, the ones that are right. This guy was so much worse than the previous Paul. He also called himself Paul. He was very sly. He goes and uh, he goes and he visits. One of the first things he does, he goes and visits the uh, the, the slave camps. And he goes over there. <coughs> Excuse me. And he sees that you know the, he went. He did an evaluation. He's like, you guys are doing a terrible job. And he started. He started saying, listen. He says, you're going to make. A, he made them an enormous amount of bricks that they need to do. And he says, for every brick that you fall short, we're going to place your baby instead of a brick. So that's what you are going to have to do. And they they physically to make the matters. To make it even more disgusting, what they did was is that uh, you know when the when the Egyptians would take the babies and throw them into the Nile, they wouldn't make the parents watch and do that. They'll, they'd take the babies and go and they would just chuck it into the Nile. The parents over there, over here, this Paul says, no, no, no. He says you're going to watch. You're going to watch the baby put into the wall and the baby, you know, they're plastering the wall and you hear the screaming coming from inside the wall and the mothers and the fathers and everybody's just got to be sit there and just got to witness the death of their loved ones. So, not only that, that eventually, it went, he wasn't even satisfied with that. He's like, no, no, now you're gonna do it. And they forced the parent to put the baby on the wall and then to, to, to basically cement it into, into the wall. Why? Because it's a twisted Egyptian, uh, Shaim. Okay. So, the new king. Now, this, yeah. Not only that, he, he, uh, he took Jewish children and he buried, and he, and he burned them alive in their temple ceremonies and for the, for the, uh, Egyptian gods. And, uh, he increased their labor and he basically, you know, the Jews at this point in time would rather death than, you know, dealing with anything of that. And they were crying, they were crying out to, to God, they were crying and crying, and uh, God, you know, heard their prayers and it was time to, for, for, uh, things to get, to get in motion, for the redemption to go in motion. So, going back to Moshe, Moshe, so, you know, you look at his, at his life, right? So his life is, is so amazing. You have, he was a prince. Well, he, first he was, you know, the son of the biggest tzaddikim of the generation, Amam and Yochaved. Then he gets taken and he becomes a prince. After he's a prince, he's a fugitive. After he's a fugitive, he becomes a general. After he's a general, he becomes king. After a king, he becomes a prisoner. After a prisoner, he becomes a shepherd. Now he's in a time where he's a shepherd. Right? This is a, this is the point of his life. He's a shepherd. So, and he's a shepherd and he's a, he's a very good shepherd. He is an extremely good shepherd. He is, he's not only that, he says no, no sheep ever escaped, no sheep ever died. He took so good care of the sheep and um, one of the reasons why he enjoyed you know being shepherd is that you were outside in the wild you were able to do uh, meditations you were able to meditate about God you know he to do it he was close with though you know so he was you know he, he preferred the solitude and um, but at the same time he always kept a very very strong eye against uh, for the sheep and one time and he always made sure never to graze in in private lands always to go make sure the public land so they're not stealing anything one uh, one time he sees a sheep that goes and runs off and so he, he goes and he chases after this land, and this, this sheep is running, is running, is running, is chasing, chasing after it, just to bring it back. And the sheep comes into the stream and he starts drinking. And Moshe's like, oh man, he's like, this sheep was so hungry. He says, and he was like, I didn't give him to drink. And he felt so bad about it that he went and says, listen, you're probably so tired, you ran out, excuse me, you're so thirsty. He went and he carried the sheep back to the flock. So God, you know, saw this. And God, you know, before, this is, a, this is an excellent lesson, before any promotion in life, you're going to get a test. And God tests you. See if you're if you're if you're worth it of this promotion. And it, and the tests are usually not like you know you know true or false. It's a it's a it's a, it's a tough test. If you're able to test that t- uh, pass that test, there's a you can you know count on a promotion coming up. So he's going and he's he's still traveling. He's still a shepherd. And one at one particular point in time, he. Um, he, the, for some reason, the sheep didn't, they didn't stop. They were, they were, they were traveling for 40 days straight. 
This is a commemoration for the 40 what's years. The, what's the number 40? keeps coming up. Yeah. There's a lot of 40. We'll have to speak about it afterwards with the mem. There's beautiful things in it. Maybe I'll tell it to you afterwards. I'm going to mm-hmm. write it. Yeah, remind me after. I'll tell you something really cool about him. So, um, the, the, he's traveling and he, he, uh, he ended up in this, this sort of mountain. This mountain was a three day, uh, travel from Egypt. About, so you're talking about about roughly 87 miles from Egypt is where he is now with his sheep. And he's there with the sheep and this is actually the famous, uh, Harsinai. This is the, the Harsinai. And he's going over there and he's struck by this awesome sight. He sees a bush. There's a thorn bush over there that's, the top third is being burnt, is on fire. The bottom third is not. And he's like, he's like, that's very odd. It's like a very odd, you know, besides the fact that it wasn't like a regular fire. It was like, it was a glowing black with many different colors. And he was starting to wonder, he's like, why is only the top part getting, and not the bottom part? So he says, it doesn't make any sense. If it's a dry thorn bush, then everything should burn. And if it's not dry, then it shouldn't even burn the top. So it, it didn't make, and he started going close to it and looking at it and staring at it. And he realized that this is not a physical fire. This is a spiritual fire. And so he was, you know, he realized that this is something more than just, you know, this is a sign of something. So he gets closer and he's like, what does this fire mean? And he's trying to figure out, you know, thorn bush. And, you know, so one of the things that he realized is that, you know, it, it was called a snap. Snat is, you know, very similar to the word sinah. Sinat, sinat chinam, one of the reasons that the Jews were in Egypt was because the, 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 the hatred that the brothers had for Yosef. And he says the reason why we got them in, so he saw this as a sign from God that something is going to happen now. Something have to do with the, with the Jews in Egypt. And then all of a sudden, he's, um, he sees this like, this angel. This angel sitting over it. You see, it was brought to them in, in levels. And then <clears throat> he looks at this angel. And then suddenly the, there's, there's a voice that comes out and starts talking to him. And it's Moshe, Moshe, and it's calling out in his father, Amram's voice. And he's, he's like shocked, you know, but you see it was a gradual uh, thing until he came. And he's like, yes, yes, father, I, I'm here. And the, the voice comes back and he's like, I'm not your father. I'm, I'm the, I'm the God of your, of your, your father and your forefathers. I'm your God of Amram and Avam, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. And at that point in time, Moshe became, you know, sad because he realized that if God mentioned his father's name, I mean, his God, his father is not, is no longer alive. It must be that he's, he passed away. And, yeah. And he, Why was his father taught that what did he do? He was a leader of the generation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Did what he was supposed to do. That's when you become a leader of generation. Um, well, obviously, and the after Shemaya and a lot of other things. But, anyways, so, um, so, so he, Moshe is getting, and God, you know, the voice that's coming out is, is, you know, prophetic vision from God. And he says, you know, don't come any closer. This is a very holy ground that you're, uh, that you're standing. And he realizes that he's like, you know, having this conversation, this, you know, prophetic vision. So he turns away not to look from, not to look at the, directly at the fire. And God goes and tells him, listen, the time has come where I'm going to free my, the, my Jewish people, my nation, my firstborn, my Jewish nation out of Egypt. And, uh, you're going to be my, uh, my messenger. And he goes and he explains the whole thing. And, and Moshe was very, you know, was, was, uh, nervous at this. He's, he, he had a question. He's like, he's like, I don't understand. Like, uh, what merit do the Jews have to, to leave? Cause he realized, he said, the reason that they're in there is because of the Lashonara that they're, that they're talking. He says, what merit do they have to that, that they're going to get out? Now, why, why did he ask? He didn't ask and be like, well, are you sure they're able to go out? Yeah. What he wanted to know, he wanted to know the merit so that if a heavenly accuser ever, ever tries to denounce him, he'll know what the merit was and he'll be able to use that against the, against the, the accuser. So, the this the you know Moshe was concerned from what he the what he witnessed with Dasan and Aviran, uh, and he realized you know the you know the, if you look at history you know when King Shaul uh, when he went and he um, you know he was the entire nation was learning Torah but they had they didn't have unity among them and when they didn't have unity they lost wars at the same point in time he had King of Ahav Ahav he was a idol worship galore 
and uh, but there was unity, and they didn't lose a fight. And he realized, says the Jews, they're lacking that. They're saying lashon What merit do they have to be saved? And God answers them and says, the merit that they have, they're going to be saved, is going to be the merit of getting the Torah. They're going to be t- they're going to accept the Torah, and that's the merit that they have to be saved. So. Moshe goes and he says, listen, he says, you know, he's such a humble man. He's like, who am I? You know, I should go and free the Jews out. There's so many better people that you, and in fact, he lists them. He's like, you know, there's so many people that you could go and you could get them to get free, to, you know, to be as a leader. Why me? I'm a nobody. I'm nothing. So, um, so, you know, God says, no, it's going to be you. And, you know, the, the conversation goes back and forth. We're making it short because of the, we're short on time. But, uh, uh, finally Moshe says, okay, listen, if I'm going to go to the Jewish people and I'm going to tell them, they're going to want to know what's your name. Because God has different names. That, not that it's different people, but it's different attributes, different ways that God interacts with the people. And for example, when God judges, the name, he uses the name Elohim. When God is at war, he uses the name Tzvakot. When God shows pity, he uses the name Hashem, which is Yudke Vavke. When God uh, withholds judgment from the from the wicked, he uses the name Shakai. He says, "What's the name that he, you're using for the for the redemption?" And God answers back, "Eya I will be. I shall be what I shall be. That signifies the God's role in the redemption of the of the of the Jewish people. So, um, you know. God goes and tells Moshe and says, listen, when you, you're going to go to the elders, the elders were not just a bunch of old people with long white beards with canes and be like, come, we're the wise men of the city. He was, they were, he was actually, they were actually the, the pure people, the holy people. And granted, some of them were old, they could be even younger, but it was the, the tzaddikim of the generation. Hashem goes and he tells Moshe, go to these people and um, tell them these words. Tell them the phrase, pakot pakadati. And there's a tradition carried down that whoever uses those phrases, only the only the the top, you know, the the, the wise men, the the elders know it. They know that if this is true, and if they hear these words, they know that they'll they'll trust you. It's like these Jewish people; they're not going to believe me. Why would they believe me? Me at all of all people, you know, I'm going to show up there, and then they're going to believe me. So, God says, I'm going to give you three signs. I'm going to give you three signs, and with those three signs, they're going to believe you. And the three signs was he's going to take he had a you know a stick, throw the stick on the floor, and the stick turns into a snake. And Moshe was all of a sudden scared about the snake. So he goes and he starts running away from the snake. Now the question was, you know, why was he scared of the snake? God told him, you know, obviously that. And the reason was, is that he was scared because, um, because you know, he realizes that it's not the snake's bite that's going to kill him. But rather, <coughs> it's the sin that kills. And in fact, there was a story with Chabrachanina Mendoza that... <clears throat> the Gemara tells us the story that there was once a venomous viperous uh, snake that would cause a lot of trouble to the city. And, they, you know, Rechina Mendoza heard about it. It's big tzaddik. And he goes and he goes over to where the snake is, you know, lives in the hole. And he lifts up his cloak and he puts his foot down in it. The guy's like, Rabbi, you crazy? What are you doing? There's a poisonous snake. You know how many people he killed? And the rabbi says, it's not the snake that kills. It's a sin that kills. The snake goes and bites the rabbi. And the snake drops dead. The rabbi goes, takes the snakes, and brings it to the Beth Midrash, and he says, you guys should all learn a lesson. It's not the snake that kills, it's the sin that kills. So, <clears throat> the um, Moshe Rabbeinu was nervous, he's like, maybe I sinned, maybe I, you know, and, and you know, he, he told the Jews, he spoke about the Jews, he says, they're not going to listen, they're not going to how do you know they're going to listen to me? So, God, the first thing that God sent him, he's going to put him a, 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 a snake. But that was Moshe speaking Lashon Hara again? In a sort of a sense of a way. So, so the, the, then God gives him another sign. He says, put your hand in your, in your, in your um, jacket, whatever, they were, in the cloak. You take it out, it was full of salat. And then you put it back in, and you take it out again, it was clean. <clears throat> and then the final, and he gave him a third thing, which was of, uh, um, it was a, he took a cup of water, and he spilled it on the ground, and it turned into blood. So this, Moshe was happy, and he was happy with his signs. Now we have to understand, what, how did those, like, why are those signs what made him, uh, what made him okay? So says the Shemi Shmuel, 
It goes like this. It says, you know, why, why, why these three signs that Egypt was full of magic? You know, like, why these signs were, were specifically the ones that, that made him feel that the, the Jews are going to believe me? It says, because the reason why Moshe was nervous that the Jews are not going to believe him, he says, because they're going to think that the time has not yet come for redemption. They knew that they were supposed to get redeemed. That they knew that's going to happen. But who said we're ready now? They knew that they were in Egypt. They had to fix certain things. It was a tikkun that they needed to do. What did they need to fix? There was three generations and previously that messed up. There was a generation of Enosh. That, and there was, uh, which did Avodah Zarah. That's where they introduced Avodah Zarah. That's where they went. And, uh, this is where, uh, Avodah Zarah idolatry came into being, is where they, they went and they saw the heavenly spheres, the stars, the high, the skies, all these, the sun and the moon. They're like, listen, if God put them out there and gave them honor, it's only befitting for us to honor who God honored. You know, you have a high government official, you honor the high government official, which in essence, you're really honoring God. So they had good intentions, but what happened was, is that after a short while, they forgot about God and they just started worshiping the sun and the stars and, and everything else. This so. This after Joseph? No, 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 this is way before. It's before, before, yeah, yeah. And this is before the flood. So, and then there came the generation of the flood. Yeah. Then came the generation of the, uh, then came the generation of the flood. And the generation of the flood went, and uh, their sin was, was uh, immorality. They were extremely immoral. Everybody had relations with everybody. It was, it was a very, very uh, uh, immoral in the sexual sense um, sign. And uh, the, the Tower of, of Babel, their problem was murder. If a brick fell, they were building a big tower of Babel to go and fight God. If one brick fell, they would start mourning, oh my gosh, a brick fell so down, we got over here. If a guy fell down and, you know, got killed, they just like step over him and, you know, go on. So they, there was a kin to murder. Yeah, to go and fight God. So, so, um, the, so the, in truth, they, the Jews were really right. The time was not yet come for the Jewish people to go and be redeemed, but they were sinking so low into like immorality that God had to take him out. They were on the 49th level of, of Tumah. So God goes and he gives them specifically these three signs to show that, the, that you, are, you are fixed or you got more or less fixed the three issues that you dealt with before. And look how everything works so beautifully. The stick that turns into a snake, who was the first one that rebelled against God, which is idolatry, was the Nachash, the snake. So the snake represents idolatry, which means is that you put it down, you, you threw the stick down and it became a snake and you took it out and, and it became a, a, a stick again. Then you have Tzarat. What does Tzarat come from? It says in Yeshayahu, the cha- third chapter in 16 and, seven, and, cha- and Pasuk 16 and 17, it says it was the daughters of Tzion, they were walking, you know, immoral, and they were struck in with leprosy, with Tzarat. So uh, Tzarat is in connection with immorality. That's why he put it inside. It says he's showing the immorality. He took it out and put it in and put it, took it out again and it became healed. Then the blood. What's the blood? Blood is in, in reference of murder. The blood is the only thing, by the way, that didn't turn back into anything else. It stayed blood. So there's a few reasons for that, but we don't have the time to, um, to go into that. But in any case, so those were the reasons why Moshe Rabbeinu specifically asked for, for signs. He gave them, God gave them specifically these signs, so this would keep at ease and, and realize that the Jews, that the time was for the redemption to, uh, to go. Okay. So, the, um, so now he goes and and um, he is. There was also one more one more thing is that when Moshe gave when God gave him the sign of the blood, one thing that was that was important of the blood is that specifically I'll give you one reason is that it didn't go back into the water is because magic so that magic usually reverts back to its it's only for a certain period of time and then it reverts back to its original whatever it was if you're changing something he says the blood would never change to show that it wasn't magic that it wasn't something that uh, it wasn't works of magic because magics are only temporary okay. So in the end, Moshe again refuses. He says, listen, after he gets this, he still refuses from God. He says, maybe you can find somebody else. He says, listen, I, you know, I can't speak. I, you know, he, he had a hard time speaking. He couldn't say the words that, that with the teeth, like, uh, shin, resh, samach, kuf. He couldn't say those words. He couldn't say also the, the words with the tongue, like dalet, tet, lamed, nun. So he says, you know, it's gonna sound funny. 
says, why should I speak? You know, find somebody else that, that, that is able to speak. So God says, no, no, I want you, I'll give you a second. I want you specifically for that reason, to show that it's not somebody who's a really good speaker, who knew how to manipulate a very charismatic leader and they know how to speak and that's what, he says, no, you're gonna, this, everybody's gonna see that it's all from God and it's not to do with that person. Yeah. No, it's just very, I feel like it, it's very interesting. It shows how much, how humble Moshe is because yeah. he was a king. For he was a king. Years. He was a prince. By all means, he was very qualified yeah. to it. But that just shows you how humble you are. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'll, um, so God says, listen, I see you don't want, so I'm, you're gonna go, but we're gonna send you a, a uh, somebody with you, and that's your brother Aaron. Aaron is gonna come, and he's gonna be the interpreter for you. He's gonna go and speak to you. But because of Moshe's constant refusal, which he shouldn't refuse so much, God told him to go, he should have gone, and because of that, so Moshe originally was supposed to be the Kohen, and God took it away from him and gave it to Aaron. And from that, Moshe, um, would be, uh, the Levi, and he would be the, the Kohen. Okay. So, now, God, you know, this is the, this is the finishing, uh, you know, the, the conversation to him and God. And he says, he says, listen, I, I'm gonna, you know, he's, he, now he has to go to me, to, to, uh, to Egypt, but he says, first I have to go back to Midian, cause I made a vow to my father-in-law that I wouldn't leave without him. So I have to go back, and he goes back to Midian to get permission from his father-in-law, Yitro, to go and, uh, go to Egypt to release the Jews. So he travels back to, to Midian. When he travels back to Midian, he sees that he, uh, you know, Mazalto, he had a baby boy. He had a, he had a, um, his second son was born. And, um, yeah, he had a son, Gelshom, and Eliezer. So, he goes, and he, he goes to his father, and father-in-law, and he says, listen, um, you know, the time has come, I need to go back to Egypt, and I wanted your permission to, uh, you know, to go. And he says, um, he says, why are you going back to Egypt? It's like, everyone's trying to get out of Egypt. You're going back into Egypt? Like, why would you do that? And he says, the time has come for the Jewish people to leave. The redemption time has come, and I want to, I want to go. So still, so what, what, you just wait till they get out and, you know, catch them up then. So no, so listen, this is going to be a giving of the Torah. There's going to be a giving of the Torah. I don't want my children to miss, be missing Matan Torah. I want them to go there and see it in first hand. So, he says, um, he says, uh, you know, you're wanted for murder in Egypt. You're walking into Egypt is not going to be such a problem. So listen, I was told, Moshe says, listen, I was told that, uh, the people that were, the, the people, the person that I killed, that I, uh, was the Egyptian, his whole family died already and I have nothing to worry about. Even Dasan and Aviran, they're not to worry about anymore because even though they were still alive, but they are, um, they lost all their money, their, their wealth, so they were considered a dead, a poor person is considered as if he's dead and there's nothing to worry about them. So, he goes and uh, Yitol goes and gives him a blessing and he says, you know, safe trip. And he goes and he takes his wife and his two children and they leave Midian. Now, uh, they leave Midian on a donkey. This donkey is actually a very special donkey. This is the same donkey that Abraham wrote on it to the Akedah. That Yitzchak in, in, inherited this and that was given to Yaakov, which is given to Levi, which is given to Kahas, which is given to Amram. And then this, this donkey is going to be the same donkey that Mashiach is going to come in. Miracle. It's a one, there's a special donkey that's alive from the beginning of time. Is yeah. It still alive. What? Yeah, it dies. Yeah. Where is it? Uh, it's a good question. <laughs> I don't know. So. Why a donkey? Yeah. Yeah, one of the things. Oh, there's reasons for that, Mashiach. There isn't for that, actually. I can't, what? Holiest? It's unholy. It's uh, not kosher. Not kosher. There's a reason why it's specifically donkey. We'll speak about it when we speak about Mashiach. Oh, speaking about? Speaking about? Yeah. I forget, so I forget. I remember uh, Rabbi was talking about like unholy and holy animals. Like he, I forgot which one was at the top, and he said like a dog is one of the unholiest animals. I think he said really? the donkeys. Yeah, familiar. I know. Do- dog is unholy. Yeah, dog is a problem. Anyways, okay, let's move on. So the day that Moshe left Midian, 
was the eighth day of, of when his son was supposed to be, uh, was born. And that's the time where you get the Brit Milan. And, um, the, the problem was is that he, he, you know, it's dangerous to give a baby a Brit Milan and then travel. You can't travel on the third day. It's good. Traveling now is not, you know, going on an airplane and traveling, you know, going in a, you know, donkey and going for days and traveling. It's, a, it's very dangerous unless you're, you're not, you're healthy. So he decided that he's not, it's superseded to go and save the Jews rather than give his son a Brit Milan. And he goes and he, he didn't give a big minah. He goes and he travels, and because he didn't give a big minah, there was a, the, an angel came, and it took Moshe, and it swallowed him. A full, the angel swallowed him until his big minah, and then it came from the other side and swallowed him from the feet down until his big minah. Tzipporah was seeing what was going on, so she saw it was because she, they didn't circumcise the son. She quickly took a rock and she circumcised the, um, the, the you know, she did it. She circumcised, they circumcised the son, and, you know, Moshe was free. Now, the question was why? Why all of a sudden, you know, did he get punished for it? And the answer is, is because he was right in not being able to circumcise because, you know, it, he was traveling. But by the time where, where he stopped in an inn, when he was a very short distance from Egypt, at that point in time, he should have circumcised it because it wouldn't have been dangerous anymore. But he didn't do it yet. So because of that, that angel came showing that he was going to get punished, and uh, he circumcised his his son. Now, while Moshe is coming in from from outside of uh, from Midian, and he's coming over, and you know, uh, uh, God goes to Aaron and says, "Go meet your brother." He's coming out, and there's a there's a, there was uh, so these are the two brothers that they met for the first time in who knows how many years, right? Well, actually, calculate it, but you're talking about many many years, and they they met, and you know, it was a very emotional you know meeting with you know tears and you know hugs and kisses, and they were like, um, and and Aaron goes and it says, "Who is this woman?" and and the children that are sitting next to you, and he says, um, he says. This is my wife and, and my, my children. So Aaron goes to them and be like, why are you bring them in Egypt? He says, the place is a death trap. He's like, don't bring them in Egypt. So that's dangerous. So what Yitzchak tried to convince him, Aaron was able to convince him, and he says, you know what, fine, I, you know, I, I take your advice, you were there, and he sends them back to, to Midian. By themselves? Yeah, well, whatever, I don't know who was going with him. Could be they were, they were with him. So he goes over, Moshe goes with Aaron, and they go to the elders. And they go to the elders, and, um, you know, they, they say, you know, like, he says, you know, I came to redeem the Jews. So they were like, you know, can you prove it? You know, like, how, you know, how do we know that? So he says, um, he says the words, you know, pakot pakadati. And they say, um, you know, let's, there was one woman that was still alive. Her name was Sarah Bat Asha. She was the daughter of the tribe of Asha. She was, she was still alive. And they said, you know what? We have a tradition that we have to bring anybody who says the Redeemer, we bring it to her. And, cause she had a tradition that she was, she heard from her father that, uh, was it Yosef she heard, that, uh, who, the Redeemer is gonna know this secret phrase. And that's Bakot Bakadi. So they come over to her and they said, listen, there was a, there was a guy that, uh, came over here, Moshe's name, and he claims to be the Redeemer of the Jewish people. She says, I'm not impressed. Uh, but then he said, and then she goes and she says, uh, I, he says the words, Pokot Pakati. And he, she's like, that's the one. She's like, that is the one. He is the one. So, um, he goes and, um, the elders were convinced that they are, that he is going to be the redeemer. Okay. So, the, um, they make this, they, they decide, they get, they gather all the elders together. Moshe and Aaron is leading them. They have this whole, the whole crew and they start marching their way to Paro. They get to the, you know, and, and slowly as they get closer to the palace, like one by one, the elders slowly slip away. You know, they got nervous, they chicken out, they're like, they're, they're getting scared. So they see all these heavily armed warriors and they're like, they started, you know, going back. And, um, they, once they got to the gate, they saw that there was a pillar on each side. Going into Paro's entrance was dead, dead by bodies hanging on spikes dead bodies of Jews and that scared the rest of them and they went all um, and they went all you know they, they all ran away so Paro had um, you know besides the fact that he had magic protecting him he had two lions you know with tied to chains that were like starved 
for this point, you know, that always, and they were in the entrance. And Moshe and Aaron are walking over there like they own the place. They're just like walking right in. And uh, Bilam sees what's going on. And he tells them, release the lions. So the lions go and they start chasing uh, Moshe. Moshe like lifts up his stick and just like taps one of the lions. And they become like like puppies. They like, you know, like like the little little playful puppies. And they start following Moshe. And like everyone's holding it. It's like, how did they just do that? Like are they like magic? And uh, so, so they, they just walk in. Lions are, you know, right beside them. And... Um, they, you know, they come in front of Paro and they say, uh, you know. Was it still the short one? Yes, yeah, same one. Yeah. Right, he's sitting from his throne, you know, swinging his feet. Yeah, so, um, he's going over there and, um, he goes and he says, uh, Moshe and Aaron go over there and Aaron speaks and says, uh, you know, the God of the Jews, uh, came to us and he told us that it's, uh, you know, you have to, you have to let us go. And what do you ask for? Give us three days out to serve our God. That's all they asked for, three days. And Paul, Paul, first of all, was like taken aback. He's like, how did you get in here? He was so, he's like, it doesn't make any sense. And he was like, he was like so in shock. And he was like, he's like, he's like you know, I need time to think about it. Come to me tomorrow. And he's like, it just took him by surprise. So they, um, they, the Moshe and Alan said, fine, then we'll come back tomorrow. And they, um, they leave. Meanwhile, Paul calls like, you know, extreme huddle, you know, quick meeting. And he's like, he's like, how did they do that? How did they just get past all the guards? How did they do that? And, you know, the, the way that the lions used to work is that Bilam or any of the magicians that were there, they would say a certain phrase and the, the, the lions would, would, you know, be at ease and they would allow people to walk in. And during the whole entire time, they would make sure when you're speaking to Paul, all the lions were right near you. So you're like, you know, pissing in your pants while you're trying to talk to the lion, make sure, you know, talking to the king while the lion's sitting over there, you know, sort of like to put some fear into you. And, um, so Bilam says, I have no clue. I didn't say anything. And none of my, my magicians said anything. These guys must be really good magicians. They just, just really know how to do that. And um, so, so Bilam said, listen, when they come tomorrow, we'll test them. We'll see how good they are. So Paolo was very happy about it. He didn't want to wait tomorrow. But bring the Jews back. He's like, yeah, let's, let's bring them back. And uh, at, at this point in time when they were coming, it was the most important day in Paolo's life because the entire, all the kings and all the nations of all the world came to visit and pay tribute to Paolo. They gave him pre- the gifts and they gave him the crowns because he was the highest king of the entire of the entire world at that time. And they all gave him, uh, you know, the the um, the gifts that you know and the and the, the you know all the compliments and everything that came with that. So while this is happening, suddenly, you know. The um, you know everybody became quiet. These like two big men started just walking in from outside. Just again, just walk right in to the to the palace. And um, you know the you know one of the slaves over there be like, "Your Majesty, you wanted the Jews. They're, they're here as you want." So at that point in time, Powell was like, you know, he had to go to the bathroom really badly. So he decided, you know, he goes he goes to the bathroom. And while he's in the bathroom, there was twelve vicious rats that were God made them over there. The second that he goes to the bathroom, they all jumped on him and they started clawing him. And, and, and you know he was like going crazy. He like flying them away. He ran out of the bathroom and um, so he was a, a, you know ready in a bad mood uh, you know he had the rat situation and uh, he goes and he thought about it he's like you know from now on I'm not using facilities again I'm going to use you know I'm going to claim everybody that I'm a god I'm done with the bathrooms and he figures I'm going to go you know he's going to go use a Nile whenever he needs it so he goes and um, he's standing in front of Moshe and Moshe is standing in front of Moshe and Aaron and he's like no gifts no compliments what are you guys doing over here again and um, so they go and they say um, you know we're, we're coming here from the you know God of our forefathers the God, the God of the Jews we're coming here to ask you to uh, let the Jews out for time to, to serve their God and he says uh, what's, what's the God's name and uh, you know so the God of the you know so he says okay look, we have a library of all the gods let's go find what your gods are uh, you know you know what's the powers so they go and they, he, he runs off to his library and he starts looking through all the transcripts for all the you know who these gods are and um, he's like he's like nothing comes up as you know God so he goes back and be like I just looked through our entire you know resources nothing comes up of your God I don't know what God you're talking about 
So Moshe and Aaron would be like, are you kidding me? You're looking in a gallery of a bunch of, you know, a bunch of dead dolls. You know, that's what you're, that's, that's what you're looking for God. Our God is the one who created heaven and earth and constantly creates and it goes on and on explaining what, you know, God. And he's like, and, and Baal is like, he's like, what? He's like, created all these things? He's like, no, no, no. He's like, those things were all created by me. Paul, I am God, says Paul. Says the Nile, I created the Nile. I created. He all of a sudden he brings himself. He puts himself as about. He says, "Look at me, I Paul. I am God." That's what Paul tells him. So, um, and then he says, uh, "You know, he says what? He says you're going to just take my slaves away from me. You think you just two random people are going to start walking in here and going to take my slaves? You think that's going to go go fly by me?" And he says, don't start telling me stories and how Paro and Avimelech and one day when Abraham and Yitzchak came and they were stricken by stuff. I had the, and you know, they got punished for whatever they did to the Jews. I had the Jews in my possession for over 200 years. Where's your God? Didn't show up till now. He says, I'll take my chances. And, and he says, if he wants to say something, let him speak to me directly. So, he goes and, and, uh, he sends him out. And then he's like, he's like, as he sends them out, he says, you know, you guys are a bunch of Levi'im. He says, maybe you guys, you know, the Levi'im didn't have to work. He says, maybe I should put you guys to work. He says, well, what's up with you guys? You're too much time thinking, you know, you know, all your brains are talking slavery and freedom, all this stuff. He says, but you know, but then he's thinking about it. You know, it's not a good idea. These these Levi'im are troublemakers. They're going to cause problems and all that. He says, better keep them where they are. And he decides, but now, he says, it's a problem over here. Because uh, if the Jews are thinking about a three-day vacation to worship their God, it's like, first of all, it's not a three-day vacation. Three-day there. One day of worship, three day back, that's a week. That's a week that I lose of slavery. So it must be that they have too much time on their hand and being too light on them. Got a time to up the ante. Time to go and, uh, and, and teach them a lesson. They, they requested three days to go out of Egypt to go and serve God. Three day travel to go to Hasinai, worship, you know, serve sacrifices and three day back. So, the, um, at this point in time, Paolo says, they have it too easy, my Jews, and now we are not giving you any straw. You have to go find and collect the straw for yourselves. And they go, and they go, and they start. Uh, um, and, and not only that, they also canceled Shabbat. Shabbat was a day off. He says no, no, nothing of that anymore. You're going to work throughout the, the throughout the day, throughout the night. And not only that, he says no more no more lunch breaks. You eat while you work. So they, he he upped it, you know, you know, crazy math. And not only that, he upped the the the, the quota for the bricks went even higher. Un, and and even furthermore, usually it was only older people had to work. Now children also had to be uh, put into slave uh, slavery as well. So, um, Moshe was not aware, from my understanding, from the way I was reading the Medoshim, I don't know if Moshe was actually aware that all this happened at this point in time. He, after he was sent, uh, sent out from, uh, from Paro, he left, he left Egypt. He went back to Midian. He went back to Midian for three months. Until Hashem came to him again and told him to go back. And, um, he goes and, um, and meanwhile, while the Jews were, were suffering terribly, terribly in that, they would go and they would have to go find straw. But they couldn't find, just go find straw because they wouldn't be allowed to walk in anywhere. They had to go into the place where no one owns anything. So they would travel for days and days and their feet would be bleeding and they finally, they would finally find some straw. They would gather the straw, they would bring it home, you know, and then, then while they're, the, the straw is full of blood and, and sweat and the, you know, the wives and the children will try to make some, you know, get it ready for the bricks tomorrow and then and when they're making the bricks, their feet are all bloody, and the blood is dripping from the from their feet into the bricks. And uh, um, you know, God saw this, so He made a miracle. Well, a miracle, and there was straw that there was a big wind, and it blew straw into for for the Jewish people, so they would be able to have uh, to have a to have a straw there. And the but they continued the, the practice if you didn't produce enough bricks, baby in the wall, and baby went right into the wall. So there was even one woman that while she was pregnant, she had to work. And not only that, it was she, while she was working, they didn't even let her. She had to give birth as she was walk, uh, as she was work, uh, working. As the baby came out, they put it right with, together with the cement, and the baby started getting mixing mixed in with the cement. Wow. This uh, woman was the was Rachel, the granddaughter of Shusela. So 
the granddaughter of Shusalach. I don't know if you're familiar with all these uh, names. It's, some of them are only in Midrashim, it's written. So um, the the Jewish you know, police went and they, they asked, to, you know, begged for, for Paul. They were like, give us an audience. You know, like, this is ridiculous. What are you doing to us? We're, we're not going to last, you know, a few months like this. And um, the Paul kept on, you know, turning a deaf ear to them. They wouldn't even see them. Um, while one of the times that they were walking on the way back from meeting Paul is where Moshe was coming back. God came over to Moshe and told him, go back into Egypt and, and, uh, and uh, you know, go back to Paul and tell him again to let the Jews go free. To serve their God. So they go and as Moshe and Aaron are coming, they see the Jewish policemen and they're like, you know, you guys. And who was also among them was the son of Aviran. The son of Aviran are going to them and be like, look what you did. Again, you're coming to cause us problems. Last time you came here, you made our work so much harder. Just leave us alone. Let us be. And Moshe and, and, and Aaron says, what's going on over here? So you didn't hear. He says, and he tells them all the, the serious stuff that's happening. And he's like, and Moshe's like, so I came here. I made it worse. He was, he, he, he didn't even continue on the way back to Paro. He left Egypt. He left Egypt because he wanted to go. He left Egypt because he, he wanted to talk to God. He couldn't talk to God in Egypt because it was full of tumah, full of idol worship. So he left Egypt. He needed to talk to God, and he um, and he says, "He says, God, what are you doing?" He says, "Because of me, I'm at fault for this. Because of me, the Jews are suffering even greater." And um, the, God says, "No, don't worry. I have a plan for everything. There's a reason why these Jews are getting. You know, many Jews are dying right now." And um, he even goes and says, "Something. These Jews are going to be wicked people." They're going to be wicked people and they need to go, uh, they need to die and, you know, it brings them proof afterwards when they save, when he tries to save one of them. So, he goes and, and, um, Moshe goes and says, you know, why did you send me if it's not time yet? And he says, no, 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 this is all part of the plan. You need to go into, into Moshe, you need to go into Paro and go ask him because the more that he's going to refuse, the bigger his sin is going to be and the more punishment he's going to get. And then, furthermore, he says, says, I understand. He says, you know, I spoke to your forefathers, Abahami, Tati, Yaakov, everybody I spoke to this, you know, they never asked, question me. All of a sudden, you're questioning me. What's all with all these questions? He says, you should be like your forefathers, you shouldn't, you know, with, uh, you know, who never questioned God. So, he goes, Moshe goes to them and says, you know, go tell the Jewish people that I'm your God, and he says there's four, four, uh, four languages of, of going, of going out. He says, I will bring you out, Ve'itzati, and then I will rescue you, Ve'itzati, and then I will redeem you, Ve'itzati, and then I'll take you as a nation, Ve'itzati. He says, you go and you tell this to the Jewish, uh, to the Jewish, uh, um, nation. And, um, and then he goes and he says, um, and Moshe goes and he's, uh, leaves and he goes into Egypt. He goes into Egypt and, Moshe tells the Jewish people, he says, it's time to go, it's time to get out, and he says, but you have to get yourself rid of your Avodah Zarah, stop, because they, they fell into, many of them fell into idol worship, and they all, some of them didn't do Brit Milah anymore, so he says, you all have to do Brit Milah, and, um, and, you know, and then we're gonna go and we're gonna get, we're gonna get redeemed. So that they were, they were like, hold up. He's like, he's like, last time you came, we didn't have to stop with Avodah Zarah, we didn't have to do Brit Milah, all of a sudden you're coming here, you're adding all these extra things for us to do, so it's very, now, you know, you have to give up Avodah Zarah, it's very difficult. He says, now we have to serve also God, we're already serving Parah. How many people do you want us to serve already? So, he says, um, one of the reasons that the Jewish people would not, you know, would, would, would ask, would, would have this, uh, confrontation is because of that they themselves would not end up entering into Eretz Israel because they refused to listen right away and their children would be entering Eretz Israel. So, the, um, Moshe goes and he, he tells, um, he, I mean, sorry, Hashem told Moshe that Paro is not gonna listen to you right away. I'm going to harden his heart. I'm going to make his heart not listen to you. So uh, the question that is asked, it doesn't make sense. It's not fair. 
Why is he going to get punished if you have a hardening in his heart? So the answer is that a person usually gives three chances to repent. And if he doesn't, then God withholds it. And the Rambam speaks about it in Hilchot Shuvah. He says he withholds the ability for a person to repent. If you got, you got certain chances and you messed it up and you didn't do the Shuvah, it's going to be very difficult for you to repent. And in fact, it says in the Midrashim that even after the fifth plague, Paul was still able to repent that he wanted to. But if there's his own fruition that he went and he hardened his, his, his heart. So, Paul, um, Hashem tells Paul, um, Moshe tells, Hashem tells Moshe, that Paul is going to ask for signs. He's going to want to know signs that you're like, you know, that you're really a leader, that you're really going and you're coming for me. Don't give him signs unless he asks for it. And, and he says, and he says, those are the signs that you're going to give are the same signs that you gave for the, for the Jewish people, with those, those three signs. So, um, in fact, yeah, I don't even know if he did, he did the, he did the, the stick. He didn't even do the other ones. So he goes and, um, and uh, Paul, meanwhile, is going to to his uh, um, to his advisors, and they say, you know what? We don't have to worry about this Moshe. The next time that he comes into the palace, we're killing him. Just it, we're we're killing him. And they're like, you know, the king is like, you know, fumbling with the idea. He's like, listen, I don't know. Maybe I'll hang him from a tree. Maybe I'll burn him. Maybe I'll have him by the sword. Who knows what I'll do? So he goes and he uh, says uh, he says to um, at, at this point in time, while he's you know, showing off to his buddies and he's going to kill Moshe right when he comes back. He goes and Moshe, um, Moshe just happens to walk in, inside. He walks inside and Paro was suddenly, first of all, he was shocked that Moshe, he, this guy just keeps on, how does he keep on getting inside here? He's like, walks in and he, he becomes, and he was so speechless. One of the reasons that he was speechless is that um, Paro was, was privy to see that near, next to Moshe and Aaron there was an angel. There was an angel um, that um, who stood by Moshe's side, and the sight of it just shocked Paro. And this angel showed visions to Paro about Gehenna, about what goes on in hell. And he just like like all everything that he was bragging about a few minutes ago, right over his head, like completely, you know. It's in the, and he's like, he's like, uh, you know, he's like, he's like, how do I know that you guys are messengers of God? So he says, um, uh, he gives a message to to Aaron. Aaron takes a, his staff and throws it on the floor, and then Moshe says, "Staff, become a serpent, become a snake." And when second that Moshe said that, the staff becomes a, a snake. Paul sees this. He starts laughing. He's like, are you kidding me? He's like, you're bringing magic to the magic capital? He's like, my wife could do that. You know? He's, trying, he's, like, he's like, call the queen over here. He calls the queen, comes in. He'd be like, uh, take a stick and make it into a snake. Can you do that? She's like, yeah, of course. Takes a stick and makes it into a snake. The guy, Paul starts laughing. He's saying, that's enough. Call the fourth, four, four, you know, four-year-olds and five-year-olds in here. They call a bunch of four-year-olds and five-year-olds, and they, they say the same thing. Turn sticks into snakes. And they went, they chucked it on the floor, a bunch of snakes were swerving around. Everyone's laughing, and like, you're coming here, and you're trying to show us the magic, you're doing the simple things. And meanwhile, all the, all the, all the magicians over there also threw their sticks, their sticks down the floor, they all became snakes, a little pile of snakes sitting on the, on the palace floor. And, um, you know, while they're all laughing, you know, uh, Aaron's snake all of a sudden goes and eats all the other snakes up. And then everyone so comes quiet. There's like silence. Um, and then, and then like, you know, Bilam, you know, goes and, and he, and he stands up and he's like, uh, he's like, listen, he's like, all right, pretty cool. I'll give you that. He says, but, yeah, you know, all right, so we don't know how to do that trick yet, but, you know, so you have one live animal. It says, it says Bilam to Paul, he says, you know, you know, it would show that he's a really, you know, better than us is if he's able to make his stick swallow our sticks. Not uh, snake swallow our snakes. Uh, that could be. So, you know, so, you know, uh, Moshe says, oh, you want to be cocky? Go ahead. He says, turn it back into sticks. He turns it back into sticks. Aaron turns back into sticks. Aaron's stick goes and swallows all the other sticks. Staying the, the same length. And, um, you know, so now all the laughing is coming to a stop over here. And uh, they're like, you know, now they're starting to sweat the Egyptians and uh, the magicians. And they're like, listen, you know, but Bilam goes says, they, they spun a new trick on an old, you know, a new twist on an old trick. He says, uh, he says, um, but, uh, you know, I don't know. 
I don't know what, you know, he probably just knows something that, uh, that we don't know yet. And, uh, Paro goes and he says, uh, he says, with all these signs that you're showing me, I still don't believe you. And he goes and he, and he, uh, and he kicks him out. And from that, from, by denying God's existence, denying all these things, denying that God through, through ten sayings, ten mamaot, God created the world, uh, now Egypt was going to be, um, be punished with, with, uh, ten plagues. If we have time, we have maybe, we have some more time, we can go through the plagues, we can start, and we're gonna start with the first three plagues, and we'll finish off with that. Okay. I know it's a long class, if anybody feels free to get up and go, by, by all means. So, the, um, the, the plagues were, um, the, the point of the plagues, the plagues were to prove that God's existence. And they were split into three sections. So you have the Tzach, Adash, and Be'achab. So the first three, the first three plagues was to prove that it, the existence of God. The next three plagues proved that God controls the world. And the last three plagues was that God has absolute power. The, the last plague in itself, the, the Makad Bechot has its own, uh, its own, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, criteria, uh, section. So, the, the no, it was not that stick. It was Aaron's stick. No, it was not that stick. Uh, so, so that yeah. So, the first three, the first three, um, oh, well, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll speak about it as we go through them. So, go, let's skip a few things here. So, um, the first plague that was going to be was the plague of blood. Oh, this is, the, this is where it gets, this is where it gets fun. The plagues are where, it is, you know, this is where the action starts happening. Um, and, and it gets enjoyable. So, um, the, if I can say that, the the plagues. Each plague lasted for a month. The first three weeks was was warning, and then one week of a plague. Now, we're going to go. The way that we're going to present these plagues is that we're going to go every single plague. We're going to go through what is measure for measure. Why this is specifically got that plague. So it just puts in the whole story so beautifully. So the um, you know. Egypt was a uh, very fertile land, but not because it rained a lot. It didn't rain a lot over there. Rather, they had a Nile. The Nile over there went and it, it, it overflowed, and exactly, and it gave everybody enough uh, uh, water for that. So the the people started worshiping the Nile. The Nile became a god, and so the first attack that God did was was going to attack their god. Because if they would have did something else, they would have attacked something else. They would have said, "Oh, you know why they're you know our god, the Nile, is angry and he's and he's giving us this plague." So to shut them all up, the first plague that's going to happen was going to be the plague of the of the Nile, the plague of the, turning the Nile into blood. So um, the w- the reasons, the measure for measure, why specifically did they get uh, their the Nile? One of them is because they made the Nile their god, so they didn't believe in God, so they got that. Number, uh, the next thing is that the Jew, the Egyptians prevented the Jewish woman from going into the mikveh, to go into purifying themselves, trying to do that. So because of that, they didn't allow them to go into the water, you're not going to be able to have any water. Also, they made the Jews be water carriers. Um, besides that, they also spilled the Jewish blood. And because they spilled Jewish blood, now your water is going to turn into blood. Furthermore, they have thrown literally the Jewish, peop- the Jewish babies into the ocean, into the river, I'm sorry, and which was staining it with Jewish blood. So the same thing, the river that you throw it made, Jew- made bloody, it's going to turn into blood. Um, now, Paro was always by the riverside. Now, you know, if you remember, we, we said earlier that uh, Paro made himself a god. He made himself a god and saying basically that, you know, he doesn't have to go to the bathroom anymore. So, but he's still a human and he still had to go to the bathroom. So he used to go every morning. He made a decree. Only, only a weirdo. Yeah, he makes a decree. No one's allowed to leave their house until the sun comes up or some like, you know, some certain, certain time. This is the time where he would go and sneak into the Nile. His palace was right by the Nile. And one of the reasons his palace was right by the Nile is that the Nile rose, you know, and he said it's the, and it made it look like the palace was floating in water. So he says in my merit, it's because I, the God of the Nile, makes the Nile rise. And the reason why it rose, and it, 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 Yaakov, you know, when he came to Paro, he, he gave him a blessing that the Nile will rise to greet you. 
and he twisted that, and he says, no, 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 I'm God of the Nile. So, every morning he would go into the Nile, do his bodily functions, his business, and uh, then he would leave and say, oh, I never use the bathroom, I'm a God, a God doesn't need to use the bathroom. So, so Moshe goes, and, uh, to Paro, and God tells Moshe, and says, you're going to go visit Paro when he's in the Nile. You know, or, you know, when he's doing his stuff. So Paro is sitting in the Nile, you know, reading the, the Daily Nile, and, uh, he's sitting over there, and he walks, and, and Moshe walks up right into the Nile and grabs it. And Paro is like shocked, you know, because, you know, he's in the middle of doing business. And, uh, he turns around, and he's like, and, and Moshe starts talking to him, he's like, and Paro is like embarrassed, he's like, he's like, uh, can you see I need some, some time over here? I, I, give me a few minutes, you know? Um, and Moshe's like, what, what you doing? You know, like, what's going on? He's like, uh, I thought gods don't go to the bathroom. And, you know, so now Paro is like, he's like, he's like, uh, you know, he's like, oh, what do you, you know, what do you care about the, what I, what I tell the Egyptians? Like, oh, you know, I can tell them, I, Paro says, I can tell them whatever they want, they'll believe anything, they're a bunch of fools. So, um, Moshe goes and he, and he starts warning Paro for three weeks, let the Jews out or you're gonna have the, the plague of blood. And, uh, Paro says, you know, whatever, leave, 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 do whatever you want, I don't care. So, Finally, the day, the plague begins. The plague begins on a Thursday. The plague begins on a Thursday, and Moshe, the, somebody had to hit the, the water, and that's when it turned into blood. But who hit the water was Aaron, because Moshe was saved by the water in the Nile. So he was, as a, as a, as a, uh, gratitude of kindness, he wasn't going to hit him. So he goes, and he, uh, and he hits the, he hits the, Aaron hits the Nile, everything turned into blood. The entire, the entire Egyptian, uh, not, not just the Nile. Every single piece of water turned into blood. And not only that, so the entire Nile, it wasn't like blood-like. It was real blood. It actually, it, it smelled like blood. It had all the chemical properties of blood. So all the fish in the Nile died instantly. And it smelled, it stunk, it was terrible. And um, the, the, you know, the question is asked is, why did the fish die? We know in the plague of the, in the, in the time of the flood, the time of the flood, all the animals died, the fish didn't die. The fish were remained alive. And the answer is because the fish in the, in the flood, they never did the sin. The animals also, they crossbred and they did, you know, the male with male. They also, they did, uh, they, they sinned also. But in the top, with the, with the fish in the Nile, when they threw the babies into the Nile, the fish ate, ate from the, from the, from the Jewish babies. So they deserve to die as well. And all the, all the fish died as well. And there's blood everywhere. Like the wood, if the wood observed blood, water, it would, it turned into blood. The, um, if let's say they washed dishes and there was a drop of speck of water still in it, it turned into blood. Out of the 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 idol's eyes came pouring out blood. Uh, even if they had food that was previously cooked, it also turned into blood inside it. If they take a juice, they take an orange and they squeeze it, blood comes out. Everything everything was was blood. Even juice. Even juice. If you're in the middle of a bath. Everything there, you're sitting in there taking a shower picture and all of a sudden it's blood. And blood is a thick consistency and it was smelly. It was, it was, if you sat in a cheese, let's say you lay down on your bed, you know, sitting over there and you know, the entire layer under you came and turned into blood. And not only that, the saliva, so you have still saliva in there, also turned into blood. So you started tasting blood. Egypt always prided itself on its clarity of its water. Look how nice its water is. Now the entire water turned into blood. So the smell of, of, you know, rotting fish mixed with the stank, you know, of blood, destroyed the Egyptians. The Egyptians also, they had all these nice perfumes, and they tried, they perfumed it, the, you know, the, to, to the heavens, and nothing helped. The, the smell was so strong. So the Egyptians go, and they went to the magicians, Egyptians, magicians, rhymes. They went, and they, and they say, you know, make it turn back into, into water. And they tried all their incantations, everything that they could do, nothing doing. So they all failed miserably. So um, they realized, um, they, they slowly realized, they started doing an investigation, they realized that the water in Goshen is still water, where the Jews are. So they all, you know, rush to Goshen, and they start taking the water from Goshen, but the second that it touches their lips, it turns into blood. And they, then they came to the realization that it's not the, the place where it is, it's rather if the, whoever's holding it, if a Jew is holding it, it's, it's water, but Egyptian holding it is blood. So what they started was, is they took a cup, 
and they took two straws inside there. And he says, he says, you drink it, I drink at the same time, the Egyptian says. So the Jew goes and drinks it, it's water. The Egyptian, the second it hits his lips, it turns into blood. The guy's like, oh, what's ridiculous, what's going on over here? So, the, um, the, the magicians tried to, whatever they could, they said, listen, this is an act beyond us, we don't know how they could do it. And they, but they were dying of thirst. Unless Suddenly, they the, unless they bought it from, if they bought it, if they Jews sold water, then they would take it. Now, you know, figure if, you know, you could buy water, it'd be like, alright, you wanna buy water? Yeah, sure. Uh, this would be $10,000. Be like, what? Oh, go, go, go find somebody else. You know, and they will run from place to place. And meanwhile, they sold it for exorbitant amount of money. Ah, I gotta think you have water and it's not blood. You really enjoy the water now. Yeah. So, so this entire, thank you. This entire plague lasted for seven days. And, uh, for seven days, uh, it went, after seven days, the Egyptians, you know, the, no water, the only water that they had was only, uh, from, um, from, from the, whatever they bought. And then the, the, the plague, after seven days, the plague went away, and the Egyptians couldn't use the old water anymore, because the old fish are dead over there. So they had to dig new wells in order to get, uh, to get the, the water. Okay, so now we're moving on to the second plague. We're gonna go to, to, to plague number three, and we're gonna stop. So, uh, the ten more minutes or so, we'll be done. Uh, so, the, um, this time, he, uh, Moshe doesn't, this is the second plague is frogs. Oh, this is one of the, my favorites. Uh, frogs are an enjoyable plague. Yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's, uh, you know, the, the, in the time, in the, in the, uh, in the plague of the blood, Moshe went over to Paro, right in the, in, when no one was around, and privacy, listen, there's gonna be a plague coming, you better let the Jews out, Paro refused. So the second time when he goes to war in Paro, it, this is in the middle of the day, in his palace, everybody's watching, everybody's listening around, and he says, listen, he says, release the Jewish people, or we're going to send, you're gonna get a plague of, of, uh, of frogs. Now, usually, you know, if you have a king, and they're going into battle against another army, you don't tell them, you don't give them your tactics. Unless you know they're not going to be able to do anything. And be like, I could tell you, I'm so much better than you that I could tell you where I'm going to hit you and you're not going to be even able to stop it. Hashem goes and tells, tells the Egyptians, let them think they could stop it. They're not going to be able to do anything. So tell them exactly what we're going to be. We're going to bring the frogs. Go, go, go. Good luck on that. So, now, one of the, the things that, uh, that uh, um, so you know, we'll start with that. So, the, the plague of the fr- frogs has started, right? Those three weeks of warnings also and the plague of the frogs uh, began. Now, the... The way it began, it was, it started with one huge, monstrous frog came out of the Nile. And there are actually some, some opinions that it was crocodiles. But the most common opinion that it was actually a frog. And the soldiers saw this huge frog coming out, and they start like throwing stones in it, arrows in it, and they were, they didn't know what was going on with, with this thing. And this frog kept on like walking forward. And they took the, the, you know, the spear that they had, and they started hitting the frog. Every time that they hit the frog, like its, its mouth opened up, it's like sci-fi. And like, a, like six other frogs jumped out. And it was, either they were, they were, they didn't, they, the more they hit it, the more frogs were coming out. And suddenly the, um, the, the frog lets out this huge, uh, I can't say roar, croak. And it looks like this huge croak. And like you hear a bunch of croaks like from the distance. Like he's calling all his family, you know. Like, oh, and all the frogs are coming and they're swarming in from all the entire land. The entire land is flooded with, not like, oh, you know, I saw six frogs today. It's like the floor was covered with frogs. That's how much frogs there were. The way, uh, but let's, before we go and describe a little bit more of uh, all the fun stuff the frogs did, let's go measure for measure. What was actually the measure for measure that these frogs did, that they, they came? One of the reasons is, is that um, the Egyptians forbid, they didn't allow the Jews to pray. So one of the biggest things that came with the frogs was the noise. Like, it drove them crazy. It was a deafening and, and uh, you know, it, it really, it, in fact, it killed, from just from the noise itself, babies died. They couldn't, you know, from, from this, from the, the, well, Egyptian babies. And because they didn't let the Jewish people pray, the same reason they didn't let them scream to God, so too they are going to go and they're going to get uh, noise that uh, they didn't let have. N- furthermore, the Egyptians didn't allow the Jews sleep. 
Now, the Egyptians are like, oh, they're not sleeping for seven days. After all this ribbit, ribbit, and nonstop, they're not sleeping, nothing. Additionally, they, for, they didn't allow the woman, the woman, you know, they couldn't scream while they're in labor because they, otherwise they would get caught. So they had to hide their screams. And if you can't scream when you're in labor, it's, you know, from what I read, I don't know, not firsthand, it makes it all the more difficult. Labor makes it, it makes it all, because you can't let it out and it, it makes it all harder. Because they, they weren't able to scream, that's why now they're going to hear nonstop screaming. Also, the Jews scream nonstop, please stop or stop. They turn the blind ear. Now they're gonna get, you're going to get screaming that you're not going to be able to turn the blind ear. And additionally, they, um, the um, the Jews, the, they would always make them eat with filthy hands. Now everything that they eat was contaminated with frogs. Um, and also they, the, the Egyptians used to make them carry all the merchandise. Now we're going to soon see that the frogs also enter their bodies. And they would have to carry the frogs. So... The, um, yeah. So, this, um, the, when the frog came out, the first place that it went was straight to the palace. It went straight to the palace, then to the, then to Paro's bed, and then afterwards spread out to the entire palace, and then afterwards it spread out through the entire, um, through the entire, uh, um, kingdom, and it went to everybody's, and in fact it was, it, it went in, in a, in a, in, in an order. And after, after it went that, finally at the end it went into the dough, and it went into the, and went into the stomachs, and it went to the, you know, it went to everybody else. Well, we'll get into that. So, the, the um, when pot, when when uh, besides the fact that it was so deafening the noise and the croaks of all these of all these frogs, the uh, the Egyptians started to try to hide away from the frogs. So there were a lot of very wealthy Egyptians that had marble, you know, marbles very strong. So that you know they marbled the entire place and they they hid in these rooms. The frogs got like the superhuman strength and they were able to burrow under and they would push the tiles of the marble in. It's like picture it like a like a like a horror like a horror movie that's coming in like you know like these like these like and it's not like frogs like oh look you know like if you're fr- you know, in France, it'll be like a little dinner. You know, like hey, you can eat it. But it was like these, like you know, like these frogs that bit, and they, they did things that were they were not like the regular, you know, little cute little frog that you have in your aquarium. Not only that, any any weird that there was liquid and a little bit dirt together, it turned into a frog. It was like frog everywhere. And once the frogs came into their houses, they started climbing onto them. And when they came onto them, they started going into their clothes. They went into their clothes and they into their armpits and they they attacked the animals, killed the animals as well. They went into they went everywhere. For women, they um, made them when they they injured them in a place that they're not going to be able to have any children anymore. And for men, they also castrated the men as well. One of the reasons for that is retribution that they didn't allow the Jewish people to have children. And they tried to prevent it. Now you're not going to be able to have any children. So um, they bit them Use your imagination everywhere. So, um, and, and let's say they wanted to drink something. They drank the, well, they had water now. So they drank the water. It turned into frog. And the frogs went inside them. And not only that, the frogs went and they, they were, they were hungry. So they wanted to cook something. So they, they cooked the dish. The, frog, the frogs jumped into the dough. And they jumped into the ovens and they jumped into that. They sacrificed a life. And meanwhile, you know, the frogs, they're in there. So they died. They're in the, they're in the fire. They're burnt to death. And they have this like, doughy, froggy crust, whatever, bready. Um, I'm sure France has a name for it. Um, so they take it, and they're like, listen, all right, what are we going to do? You know, we'll eat this. So they ate the bread with the frog inside it. A miracle came, and when the frog went inside, it turned alive. And now, it wasn't it was just hanging around. It was it was running around over there, and it, 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 it was making the noises. It was croaking in front of them. You know, it's like they open their mouth, they hear, you know, a nice echo, and they close it, they hear it, you know. The, the frogs were literally inside them and literally, you know, nibbling at them and, and driving the Egyptians crazy and become making them sick, uh, um, with, with, the, you know, many of them, many of them actually died in this, in this plague. The, um, and one of the things was there was always an argument between Egypt and Kush, which is a neighboring town, about where's the land, you know, where's the borders. Now this showed exactly where the borders, because the frogs went exactly to where the border, they did not step over a border out of, out of it. So besides that, it says also that there was, you know, they added little bonuses. There were snakes and crocodiles that also came over there. And, uh, 
you know, these are, you know, they, they ate everything in sight. And it says, it says it's written ten times in the, in the Makot, in the, in the Torah, saying that this is equal to the, to, in, in severity to all the ten plagues. This is one of the most severest plagues was the, was the, was the, was the frogs. Yeah. So, yes. Like, how are there any Egyptians left, like, alive at the end of the ten Makot? There's a whole country. It's a big thing, you know, so they, they, some of them died, but God made them that some of them would last till the end. Not only that, they even had afterwards that they ran and chased them into the sea. Right. Why did God do a plague that affected every single Egyptian? What if not all of them were bad? There were kids also, there were like normal people, I'm sure. Good question. Usually if you're, you know, once the, you know, once the, the plague of destruction comes, it doesn't differentiate between good and bad. It was their fault. It was the parents' fault then. No. Like, That's why, Yeah. We'll speak about it by the day, by the plague of the of the firstborn. So, Carl was a firstborn. Then. Yep, he was a firstborn. Oh, you're right, because he was a secondborn over here. Very good. Yeah, we'll get to that when, when, when what's it called? Very good. Excellent. So, um, where were we? Um, okay. So, this now, uh, Paro goes and runs over runs over to the Egyptians and says, "Listen, do something. Make it make it. Uh, um, you know." Do some magic, you know, make it, make it that it, that it, and they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't do anything. They're like, listen, this is beyond us. There's so many, you know, we can't, we can't do anything about this. So, I, Paul runs over to Moshe and says, make it stop. And he says, alright, I'll make it stop. He says, but, um, I'll show you that this is all from God. And it's nothing to do with magic. You tell me when you want it to stop. The second that you tell me you want it to stop, I'll make it stop. So Paul was thinking, he says, listen, Moshe now, he's saying that. You know why he's saying that? Because he thinks I'm going to say it right now. Because it's so bad, I just want it out. He says, no, I'm not going to fall for that. He probably didn't realize that magic is wearing off. Paro is willing to sacrifice more pain till tomorrow. He's going to say, do it tomorrow, because he wanted to see if really Moshe was able to do it. But he told him, he says, tomorrow do it in the morning, because the way that magic works, the magic is able to work from noon to midnight. That's the time that it's able to work. So he says, I want you to do it in the morning when magic is not able to, to work. So Moshe says, you got it. Exactly the time that you say, that's when it's going to happen. And, they, they, you know, Moshe... Moshe left, and uh, the um, they they uh, you know exactly the next day exactly the time Moshe went outside of Egypt he went and he prayed and exactly the time that Paro asked for is when is when all the the frogs some you know they they actually they went away some of them uh, some of them died instantly some of them were able to live and actually people that the ones the frogs that jumped into the ovens and sacrificed a lot they were able to live there were other frogs that jumped into the um, into the oh, into the what's it called into the Nile River and otherwise they had just frogs everywhere the, the piles and heaps and heaps of frogs big one? I don't know where the big one went <laughs> mama one maybe they probably split up into who knows how many so um Anyways, so now Moshe goes and says, listen, Paul said, you get this done, you can go. So he goes over to Moshe, uh, Paul, Moshe goes over to Paul and says, uh, alright, now, true to your word, right? And Paul says, nah, I uh, changed my mind. Uh, you guys are, yeah, just like the wicked. When, when they're in trouble, they promise everything, and then when it comes times for payment, that's when they're not gonna be able to, uh, go. Okay, uh, five more, uh, even less. A few more minutes, we'll finish lice? Mm-hmm. Yep, okay, and then we'll, We'll finish with the lice. Okay. The lice, the final plague, the plagues worked away like this. It's, uh, it was in three, it, it, it came in threes. It was warning, warning, no warning. Warning, warning, no warning. That's how that went. Yeah. So this was specifically for that reason. We'll, we'll see if we get to it at the end. Um, the, um, so, so the, this plague was no warning. No warning with lice. Suddenly, um, the, the, the lice, for, let's first do a measure, a measure for measure. What was the reason that they did, uh, that they got lice? Number one is that the, the Egyptian, Used to uh, make the Jews sweep the dirt, so every all the dirt turned into lice over here, and they would they would also 
prevent the Jewish people from bathing, which means is that they had lice on their clothing, and they would forbid, forbid them from actually taking out. They, they actually had to work with lice always, or louse, I don't know what the, you know, lice. So they had, the, louse is one, singular, right? Louse. Yeah. So um, you, so you, they, they had to work with clothing that was full of Egypt, and the Egyptians would used to go, and with, if their clothing had, had lice in them, they would go and make the Jews pick out the lice and, and uh, clean it. Um, Furthermore, God wanted to do it specifically with lice because lice is very, very small. Magic can't work on something so small. It has to be larger than a, bean, a barley bean, I think, is the, is, the, is the thing. So if it's smaller than that, magic can't work to show that this is not, nothing to do with magic. And um, so uh, this, uh, this was also done by Aaron. Aaron had to hit the ground. The ground all turned into lice. Again, it was, it was, it was a layer of lice. Um, and in fact, you, you know, they, they say that in certain parts it was two feet deep, four feet deep, or ten feet deep of lice. That's how much lice are on top of each other. So, the um, the reason why Moshe couldn't do it is that the soil, the ground, which turned into lice, protected Moshe when he covered the Egyptian with the ground to, to hide the body. So, the um, when when this when on impact when our own staff hit the hit the ground, it didn't turn into regular lice. It turned into you know there was there was worms and fleas and everything that, that comes to like the decay. And um, it was actually it says there was fourteen different species of lice. But these lice were lice like or they were on steroids. They were like serious lice. It was either from the size of a chicken egg to a goose egg. That's how big they were. So you're talking about like think about it like bed bugs, like like two feet uh, <laughs> two feet of. Yeah, but and we'll see how originally being that they couldn't replicate it because bring that original they they, they were produced they first started small and then they grew. It was like you know you have these like games and you put in the water and they they expand. It was like that. They started off small and then they just grew. So they were and it says like each person had about fifty two pounds of lice on him, like you know on him around them in the in that area. That's how much and they 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 feasted on the flesh. Um, sweet dreams tonight, guys. Huh? All right, so um, right, yeah. So, um, but they were so itchy from these things. They were, they were literally eating their skin that they started, the Egyptians were like scratching the backs of the walls and the like skin was like peeling off. They were like fleshes of skin were, were peeling off. Mm-hmm. They, they, yeah, they went and Paul goes, calls the Egyptians and says, can you duplicate this? And he says, we can't because it's too small. We can't, we can't do it. This is the last time where Paul asks the Egyptians to duplicate it. He says like, oh, you guys are useless. These guys are, you know, outshine you already three times. Like forget about it. So, um, they, um, they, you know, he stopped calling them uh, to come. So the lice were were all over the, um, you know, all over the, and, and you know, all over the, the ground, all over this. And, and Paul was like, "What's going on with you guys? Why can't you, you know, why can't you do anything? Why can't you 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 match up to them?" He says, first, so the the the, the magicians go and they say, first of all, he says, uh, "We as magic can only bring play, we could bring animals and all these crazy things from other parts of the world as long as they exist." We've never seen this species of, of flies, but we cannot bring them. We don't know where they're coming from. We've never seen this species before. Furthermore, he says, we're too busy scratching ourselves. How are we supposed to go and do magic? And he says, and additionally, in order to do magic, you have to be standing on solid ground. That's one of the, the criteria for magic. So he says, we're standing on lice. They, could, they, they, they were stepping on lice the whole time. They couldn't even get to the ground. So, and they said, they tell Paul, he says, listen, he says, at this point in time, uh, to be honest, we don't think this is magic anymore. This is something greater than magic. This is something, this is something above us. So, um, Paul starts, he's like, he's like, even though his, his, his people told him that, he still says, listen, there must be, you know, he says, he says, why didn't, why didn't Moshe, uh, you know, uh, warn me about it? Could be he didn't even know about this. Maybe it's just an epidemic that just happened to come. And he says, there's nothing to do with God, nothing to do with that. These lights just happen to, to be in a certain, uh, area. So, 
He goes and, and, uh, um, the, the plague ran its course until it was finally over. And, but these lice actually stayed with, with the Egyptians all the way until the end. They, uh, they never got rid of them. It was still, I mean, most of them went, but they were still all over their clothes and everything like that. This is the first set of the three plagues where they were completed. This is proving to all of Egypt that God existed, that it's not magic, it's not anything else. It is something other than a high power and it's something of that God existed. Any questions? Yeah, I have a question. Okay, you know, let's stop this. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.